0: Welcome to Cine Study, an incomparable extravaganza featuring film breakdown, analysis, and overall good times.
1: Now for our 27th episode, The Princess Bride. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to Cine Study. I am your host, Dylan, and today we got an extended analysis episode for you, and that is covering 1987's. The Princess Bride, directed by Rob Reiner and starring Carrie Elwes, Mandy Patinkin, Robin Wright, Chris Sarandon, Christopher Guest, Wallace Shawn, and Andre the Giant. In typical cine study fashion, this episode will be divided into both spoiler-free and spoiler-full sections, so you can listen to this episode both before and after viewing The Princess Bride, or all at once if you've already seen it, or all at once if you just don't care about spoilers. I will be very sure to note when we transition into the spoilerful section, but you can also find that timestamp in the show notes. Quick IMDb plot synopsis. While homesick in bed, a young boy's grandfather reads him the story of a farm boy turned pirate who encounters numerous obstacles, enemies, and allies in his quest to be reunited with his true love. That's an okay plot synopsis. The other ones are a whole lot worse, so that's the one courtesy of IMDb. All right, so let's jump in with the crash course, which is basically me going through some characteristics, some very you know, broad-stroke things about this movie, so you can be a little bit more acquainted with it before I start dissecting it. This movie is an hour and 38 minutes long, not too bad. It's rated PG, and it is classified on IMDb as an adventure, family, fantasy, and romance movie. I think that kind of sums it up. This movie kind of dabbles in a lot of different genres. It currently has an 8.1 out of 10 stars on IMDb, which is pretty good. You know, the numbers on IMDb are they kind of tend to fluctuate, and they don't give you the best idea of how a movie is. If you want Metascore or Rotten Tomatoes, feel free to look that up on your own. I will be rating this movie on a 10-star system at the end of the spoiler-free section. On the IMDb Top 250, this comes in at 218. It kind of tends to stay from 200 to 250. It's been there for a while. Let's talk about the kind of awards considerations for this movie. Pretty scant in the awards category here. It was an Oscar nominee for Best Music Original Song for the song Storybook Love by Willie DeVille. Pretty sure this song pretty much only happens in the end credits. I might be just blanking out on where else it plays. But that makes it interesting that it got nominated, did not win. And as far as Golden Globes, BAFTAs, all that go, Princess Bride did not bring in very much at all. Uh, This is surprising, sort of, but it's not that surprising because this movie is beloved. It's kind of, I wouldn't say it's a cult classic, but it definitely has its own distinct following. It's pretty well regarded, but when it came out, it wasn't wasn't quite at the level of appreciation I think it now is. But speaking of when this movie came out, let's talk about kind of the people that went into this movie and where they were in their careers, how this fares for their careers, stuff like that. Let's start with Rob Reiner. Rob Reiner had a couple of directing outings before he did The Princess Bride. Uh, he did two TV movies that I'm not really going to mention. 1984, he brought in This Is Spinal Tap, which is pretty beloved in the realm of mockumentaries. Followed that up in 1985 with The Sure Thing, a lesser known one, not one of his best or most highly known or regarded 1986 Stand By Me, I've kind of gotten some mixed opinions on this movie from other people. I haven't seen it myself, but that's more of kind of a drama. So he'd done a mockumentary and a drama and then followed up in 1987 with The Princess Bride, a movie we are obviously talking about and a movie most people know. Other movies in his career include When Harry Met Sally, Misery, A Few Good Men, which good run right there. The Princess Bride, or actually bring it all the way back, Stand By Me, The Princess Bride, When Harry Met Sally, Misery, A Few Good Men are all consecutive for him. So that's pretty good and then some other ones here and there but that was kind of his prime so as we can see he's kind of like getting into his career spinal tap really did propel him as a a solid mockumentary and then he kind of exhibited that he could do a little bit of everything with stand by me and the princess bride kind of brought that home because it's kind of this cool centerpiece to his career of he's got a little bit of everything on either side of it but right in the middle is this focal point of the princess bride which as i've mentioned kind of dabbles in a lot of genres and uh, a lot of that has to do with some of the writing but we're going to tackle that a little bit later on as far as what rob reiner's most popular movie on IMDb is this is it it's right above stand by me they have the same star rating but this one i guess averages a decimal place higher and below stand by me is spinal tap and i won't go further down the line that's all you need to know this is his most well-received movie according to IMDb. let's look at the actors because i want to deal with the writing a little bit separately there's a little bit more to talk about there carrie elway's He had done a few things before this, but pretty much nothing you've heard of, and if you have, he probably didn't play a very big part. This kind of did launch his career, because after this, he would make his appearances in Glory and uh, a couple other movies, uh, Bram Stoker's Dracula, Robin Hood Men in Tights, a little bit of everything. He kind of slowly builds. So this really does launch his career, and uh, he's kind of continued a little bit. Uh, He's kind of an interesting actor. He's not in too many, like, slam-dunk performance kind of movies, but The Princess Bride's there, and that's all that matters. And as far as sorting by the IMDb rating, this is one of the higher-rated movies for him, but he's appeared in a lot of TV shows, so if you go beyond most of the TV shows, you get The Princess Bride as his highest-rated movie. So Cary Elwes does owe a lot to The Princess Bride for his career, and it's definitely one of the highlights of his career. Let's move to Mandy Patinkin here. This is also Mandy Patinkin's highest-rated movie. And this will tend to be a lot of people's highest rated movies, just by the sheer fact it's in the top 250 means there can only be so many movies rated higher than it. And this was also kind of one of his earlier things. He had a voice in Castle in the Sky, and he was also in Yentl and Ragtime and a few other things. Uh, if I had to guess, some of these were pretty small roles. You can very clearly see that there was a lot of young actors brought into this movie. There's a couple of established figures, but we'll get to them later. But there's a lot of people here that are kind of semi-fresh faces that were brought in. And... They really do carve out very memorable characters for that. And what I think is part of the appeal is the general campiness of this movie in which a super established, like actually really good actor might not have fit the bill, but we'll cover that later. Let's move on. We'll do one or two more because I could go through all of these actors and where they were in their career. But just to solidify what I'm saying about kind of fresh faces, let's talk about Robin Wright. Robin Wright only has one movie rated higher than this. People can probably guess what it is, For Scump. So again, this is right up there in her career. But this was kind of her breakout thing. If you look on her IMDb, she was in one TV series that nobody's heard of, and then she was in Hollywood Vice Squad. Who knows what Hollywood Vice Squad even is? I'm looking at it now, and it has Carrie Fisher, and that's about it. It does a, has a very poor rating on IMDb, and then she's in The Princess Bride. So I'm telling you, a lot of these people get a huge jumpstart with The Princess Bride. People that don't, though, Andre the Giant was already kind of known for his wrestling. Peter Falk had done quite a bit. You know, you might say some are more well-known than others, but either way, he had definitely been in a lot of stuff before The Princess Bride. Christopher Guest had been in This Is Spinal Tap. Chris Sarandon had done a couple of things. Fright Night, he actually played Jesus in The Day Christ Died, which is just something to mention, and he made a brief appearance in Dog Day Afternoon. He's kind of middle ground in terms of these fresh faces versus not fresh faces. And then, of course, we have all the other side characters that I'll mention later on. Uh, Billy Crystal, we don't really need to tackle where he was in his career because he wasn't a big focus of this movie, Fred Savage, etc. Let's talk about the writing a little bit. William Goldman wrote the book The Princess Bride, and then he went on to write the screenplay of The Princess Bride. William Goldman's a pretty prolific screenwriter. He did Bush, Cassidy and the Sundance Kid, All the President's Men. I believe he wrote the screenplay for Misery. Uh, so he's worked with Rob Reiner a couple other times, but if you just look at his IMDb, it's clear that he's written quite a few things, Marathon Man, Uh, The Stepford Wives. He's got a pretty good career. A lot of pretty well-respected movies, and on top of that, well-respected writing and dialogue in those movies. Now, the book. I started to read the book a very long time ago, and I never really got into it, and that's because I think I was ready to just jump in with the characters and stuff, but the book actually has some modern-day stuff of William Goldman just talking about himself, and some of it's not even true. Like There's it's very weird i don't want to tackle it too much because the book is just it does have some major differences. You get a whole backstory for Fezik instead of him just kind of being there. so it kind of goes into more detail, but the charm that the movie has just so outweighs the book to me. It's one of those movies where like I, if you go back and read the book, to me it was too much of me trying to imagine the movie that i couldn't I couldn't uh, enjoy the book as much because I was just like I wanted it just made me want to watch the movie again because the movie is so its own contained really just satisfying thing. But that's not to say the book is bad. The book's pretty well respected. Uh, the book's probably pretty good. I just didn't get that far into it because I was, I guess, not thinking about it too much, and I don't read that much, I guess, and uh, we'll just move on from that. It just makes me look bad. Music was done by Mark Knopfler. Uh, you know, what? actually, I'm going to wait and talk about the other people involved with this movie, because I'll just talk about them in their own section, cinematography and stuff like that, uh, which means we only have one more thing left in Crash Course, which is trivia. I enjoy reading some of the IMDb trivia. It gives you some things to think about before we uh, you know, start this whole episode. Uh, I'll try to fly through these. Uh, when Christopher guests uh, at a certain scene, he hits Carrie Elwes over the head. Uh, he actually hit him for real and hit him hard enough that Elwes had to go to the hospital and production was shut down for a few days. Uh, Mandy Patinkin has said that Anigo Montoya was his favorite role he's ever had. Originally, when William Goldman was trying to get this movie made, Arnold Schwarzenegger was pretty unknown, but he wanted to play Fezik, and uh, William Goldman strongly considered him because they couldn't get Andre the Giant interested, but once the movie was finally able to be made, Schwarzenegger was way too big of a star, and uh, Andre the Giant ended up playing the role. Mandy Batinkin says the famous, hello, my name is Nigamato. you killed my father, prepare to die, gets quoted back to him by at least two or three strangers every day which I think is pretty funny. Apparently, Billy Crystal caused quite a bit of laughter. Rob Reiner had to leave the set because he was laughing way too hard, and uh, Mandy Patinkin had to stifle his laughter so much that he actually bruised a rib. Big props to Billy Crystal. He is quite the comedian. Apparently, Andre the Giant was just a super likable and helpful person on set, which is just what you love to hear about that guy. The character of Dread Pirate Roberts is based off a real pirate named Dread Pirate Roberts, uh, and he was apparently in the Caribbean in the early 18th century and was supposed to be pretty successful. And one of the biggest things to know about this movie, there is an insane sword fight in this movie if you haven't seen it, Uh, and this was actually learned by the actors Carrie Elwes and Manti Patinkin. They trained for months with both their right and their left hand learning how to do it, Uh, and they were training with people who had done a lot of other kind of stunt work and stuff, Lord of the Rings. Bond movies, Raiders of the Lost Ark, Star Wars. It's pretty awesome. And originally, they only put together a one-minute scene. Rob Reiner's like, no, nah, this isn't good. I want three minutes. And they went for it, and they did more and more and more choreography. So big props to those guys and their trainers. They really got it done. Andre the Giant was having a lot of back problems during the filming of this movie, So this prevented him from actually lifting anything heavy despite his character having to do that a lot. So Robin Wright was attached to wires when Fezik had to catch her. And I think also the scene where he kind of brawls with Wesley, there was kind of a double use there, which is interesting. Most of this movie was filmed on location in England, which is pretty cool. The guy who plays the albino has actually never watched this movie because he apparently had a really painful experience wearing certain contact lenses that he was allergic to and stuff like that. So this poor man was in constant pain throughout filming and does not want to relive that. All right, I think that's kind of it for trivia. As usual, I could go on and on about trivia, but that means you can read your own trivia and stuff if you just go to the IMDb page for The Princess Bride. That means it's time to go into the acting section. All right, so let's start off with the core performances here. We have, as mentioned, well, I've mentioned all these people, Cary Elwes as Wesley. Finally,
2: Roberts decided something. He said, all right, Wesley. never had a valet. this tonight. i will most likely kill you in the morning. Three years, he said that. Good night, Wesley. Good work. Sleep well. i am most likely kill you in the morning. It was a fine time for me. I was learning to fence, fight anything anyone would teach me. Roberts and I eventually became friends. And then it happened. What? Go on. Roberts had grown so rich, he wanted to retire. So he took me to his cabin. Told me his secret. I am not the dread pirate Roberts, he said. My name is Ryan. I inherited the ship from the previous Dread Pirate Roberts. The man I inherited from was not the real Dread Pirate Roberts either. His name was Cumberbunt. The real Roberts has been retired 15 years and living like a king in Patagonia.
1: Wesley's this farmhand that Robin Wright's character, who's a princess, falls in love with at the beginning. They get separated. And uh, that's all I'm going to say, because then there's kind of some interweaving stuff with his character and, uh, you know, just interesting things like that. I don't want to spoil too much because there is a lot of cool little reveals and pieces and parts along the way where you're just really investing in all these characters. So I'll just talk in very broad terms. Kerry always has a very kind of nice coolness to his character, uh, this competence to his character, which I think was needed because he's a very multi-skilled character, as becomes evident in his three challenges uh, he must face. This coolness can almost seem cheesy at times, but the movie itself has this general feeling of campiness to it. And it's due to a lot of different components. The music, the kind of look of the movie and the, the special effects and stuff. Definitely the writing and the dialogue is, is very kind of comical and, and somewhat... I guess the word is cheesy. It's kind of supposed to be that way because it's kind of emulating all these classic... Uh, fantasy books in a way and sort of spinning them and providing a parody of them, sort of not sort of actually following that definition and just telling a really fun story in that category. Uh, so the whole movie has that kind of campiness. I'll kind of expound upon that in each of the following sections. But just for acting, it means that Carrie Elways, who was a young actor and can be a little bit like if you've seen it, you kind of know what I mean, where a lot of these characters, the way they say in their lines with, like, this certain confidence, but the lines themselves are kind of cheesy, just makes the whole performance kind of cheesy. Uh, it's not bad, though. This is one of those movies where the cheesiness nails it. Like, the campiness of this movie is what makes it great, the kind of overall just charm and, like, and satisfaction to this movie. But, yeah, so Cary always, with his coolness and, and his competence and the confidence throughout the movie, uh, is pretty great, and he has some good chemistry with uh robin wright uh with his kind of almost uh, in a way kind of wry line delivery for some of his jokes and one-liners and stuff he's definitely pretty good right, let's move on to the person i just mentioned robin wright rest highness
3: i know who you are your cruelty reveals everything you're the dread pirate roberts admit it
2: with pride what can i do for you
3: you can die slowly cut into a thousand pieces
2: Hardly complimentary, Your Highness. Why lose your venom on me?
3: You killed my love.
2: It's possible. I kill a lot of people. Who was this love of yours? Another prince like this one? Ugly, rich, and scabby?
3: No. A farm boy. Poor. Poor and perfect. With eyes like the sea after a storm.
1: Robin Wright is kind of a character who kind of follows all the other characters and kind of stops off at various points with different characters. She's kind of this classic idea of a princess, damsel in distress kind of figure. Uh, But she has also this kind of good confidence and princess uh, royalty to her uh, that comes across very well for this, you know, supposed to be very fantasy-driven classic fairy tale story. And as mentioned, she has good chemistry with Carrie always. Okay, let's tackle the kind of three, uh, the three guys that are kind of working together. Uh, I won't say what their goal is, but we've got Mandy Patinkin as the main one, Inigo Montoya, the swordsman, the Spaniard.
3: I do not mean to pry, but you don't by any chance happen to have six fingers on your right hand.
2: Do you always begin conversations this way?
3: My father was slaughtered by a six fingered man. Was a great sword maker, my father. When the six-fingered man appeared and requested a special sword, my father took the job. He slept a year before he was done.
2: I've never seen its equal.
3: Six-fingered man returned and demanded it. But at one-tenth his promised price, my father refused. Without a word, the six-fingered man slashed him through the heart. I love my father. So naturally, I challenge his murderer to a duel. I fail. The six-fingered man lived me alive. But he gave me this.
2: Well, I... I certainly hope you find him someday. You're ready then? Whether I am or not, you've been more than fat. You seem a decent fellow. I
1: hate to kill you. You seem a decent fellow. I hate to die. He also has this coolness, this suave nature to him, but he also has the side to him where he can get crazy and raving when he's drunk or when he's panicking or when he's, you know, you know dueling at times where he, he kind of gets this excitement to him that makes him a really fun character to watch. Uh, All of the actual action of Manny Patinkin, the chase scenes or the duel scenes, are very fun to watch with him because, again, he's got this very confident demeanor to him, uh, but also that kind of intertwines with, like I said, he gets sometimes this kind of frenetic way about him. And it's rare when that pops up, but when it is, it's cool. It fits his character because he's so dead set on this one goal. Let's move on to another person in the group, Andre the Giant as physique.
3: He can fuss. Fuss, fuss. Thing you
2: like to scream at us?
3: Probably he means no harm.
2: He's very, very short on. charm.
3: You have a great gift for Ryan.
2: Yes, yes. Some of the time.
0: Enough of that! Pussy, are the rocks ahead? If there are! They be dead. No more
1: rhymes now, I mean it. Anybody want yeah! Andre the Giant, half the time, is a little hard to understand what he's saying, but it gives him this kind of big innocence to him of all of his lines are written in a way where he has this innocence, this purity to him of just trying to help out everyone and this kind of, he's a very much a gentle giant figure. And the way he has this kind of dry, uh, innocent very blunt delivery of his lines, uh, makes his one-liners very funny. It's funny because I feel like he's not really just even playing a character. He's just saying his lines, but that just makes him this big, uh, goofy kind of guy in a way. Goofy is not the right word because he is very serious throughout the movie, but the way he says things with such seriousness gives him this strange goofiness to him. Uh, I really like what Andre the Giant did he probably wasn't doing much acting he's probably just reading the lines but it, it fits very perfectly with that character and that character's purpose is just kind of this helpful aid along the way who's trying to stay by Enigo's side and vizini's side all of these people and just kind of help each other out especially because he used to be a wrestler and has left that life which is that backstory i was talking about very briefly mentioned in this movie but yeah Andre giant pretty good let's move on to wallace sean as vizini oh you gotta love wallace sean Am I
0: going mad, or did the word THINK escape your lips? You were not hired for your brains, you hippopotamic landmass! I agree with physic. Oh, the sot has spoken! What happens to her is not truly your concern. And remember this, never forget this! When I found you, you were so slobbering drunk, you couldn't buy brandy! And you, friendless, brainless, helpless, hopeless! Do you want me to
1: send you back to where you were?
0: Unemployed in Greenland!
1: First of all, his face. Like, his facial expressions are gold. When he's about to drink the goblet in the Battle of Wits, this man has the best smile. When he's panicking, like, that's the other thing. He has this weird way about him where he's always walking with these hunched shoulders and then just, like, raising his arms, like, you know, what's going on, especially when he's saying inconceivable. Inconceivable! Like, he's got this kind of panic to him, too, this over-the-top, really, really fast-firing kind of wittiness to him. He's got this kind of fake smarts to him, obviously, where he kind of sounds like he knows what he's talking about because he's trying to be the leader, and he's commanding everybody around in this really comical and sometimes even insulting way. But really, you can tell that this guy is just kind of putting on a front because of the way Wallace Shawn maintains this kind of not nervousness, but this kind of, uh, I guess he's kind of like in this weird, frantic mode throughout the movie. He's got, he's got like a very frenzied way about him. Also, his line delivery is great because he, uh, he's kind of good at fast delivery. I always like when somebody can rip through a lot of words really fast. It's kind of like one of those automatic comedy things when somebody's saying really complicated sentences really fast and those sentences are kind of saying a whole bunch of nothing. And well, has quite a few of those. Uh, So he's just a really fun character who's banter with everyone whether it be Carrie Elways or the other guys in the group uh, when he's just kind of always insulting people and trying to prove his intelligence in his frantic way uh, and walking around like super fast paced and nervously and stuff and uh, but then also dropping down to sometimes trying to be this kind of villain intimidating character when Robin Wright jumps into the water or when he's actually dumbfounded by Wesley climbing the rope up the cliffs of insanity and he's actually like Inconceivable. Inconceivable. So he, he kind of plays a lot of different roles. And I mean, Wallace Schell is just great in this movie. Uh, a couple more big ones to hit. We got, we've got Chris Sarandon as Prince Humperdinck. Clearly this was all planned by warriors of Gilda. We must all be ready for whatever lies ahead. Could
2: this be a trap? I always think everything could be a trap, which is why I'm still alive.
1: He is the guy that Robin Wright's gonna marry And there's kind of a wrench thrown in that plan. Uh, He's kind of the villain because he has this ego about him. He's supposed to be this great huntsman. Like two of the characters we mentioned before, he's supposed to have this great charisma and seriousness and importance to him. He's also a villain you don't like because you are invested so much in the other characters based on their performances and based on the writing that you just don't like him because you just do not want to see him win in any way because you are told of this other true love with Robin Wright and Carrie Elwes and you don't want to see Chris Sarandon be involved in this at all. So that makes him a really interesting character because when you have a villain that people are going to really fervently root against, you're already succeeding as a writer and as a director. And as an actor, obviously. So Chris Sarandon, pretty good. Christopher Guest, Count Ruken, kind of a side villain.
2: Beautiful, isn't it? it? Took me half a lifetime to invent it. I'm sure you've discovered my deep and abiding interest in pain. Present, I'm writing the definitive work on the subject. So I want you to be totally honest with me on how the machine makes you feel. This being our first try, I'll use the lowest setting. Let's just start with what we have. What did this do to you? Tell me. And remember, this is for posterity, so be honest. How do you feel? (laughs) interesting
1: he's pretty cool he has six fingers that's kind of just a cool trait uh he has much more of a serious villain factor to him uh based on just his intimidation and his kind of lore behind him of of what we hear has happened with him in the past um and what he's done Uh, It's kind of supported by the fact that Inigo Montoya is so driven in his goals that you think, wow, this dude must be a really bad dude. But yeah, he's got this just kind of very straightforward, uh, you know, villain way about him. If you just think of a movie villain, He's kind of that where he's just got this intelligence and the eyebrows are furrowed and he's serious and intimidating. That's kind of Christopher Guest, and he's good. All right, Fred Savage and Peter Falk, not too much to talk about there. They're kind of the narrators of this whole story, and they're both pretty good. They're pretty authentic. They're pretty fun in the scenes with them. I mentioned Mel Smith, who plays the albino, and there's a lot of these kind of side characters who are just really funny. He has this like raspy voice he does that's really funny, and then he like transitions into a very straightforward British accent. And his facial expressions, the way his eyes move and stuff like that, are really fun. Uh, Billy Crystal has some great lines. I have to think some of it was ad-lib because it's just too perfect. Uh, He also has this way of hunch shoulders, arms up, the same way Wallace Shawn is, uh, you know, pacing around. And uh, he always has this great comeback, this great answer to everything. Uh, Goes off on tangents, which are always funny because he's, uh, like Wallace Shawn, he rips through a lot of dialogue really, really fast, which is great. Uh, some good banter with the the people he's with his whole appearance is great and yeah he's just doing this weird thing where his mouth's almost all the way closed but he's like really enunciating in a weird way and I think those are kind of the big side characters you got the guy the priest who says mawage he's pretty funny uh, you got the the gatekeeper who's good I mean you could really go down the line with all the side characters and I guess that's what I'm about to talk about which is uh, the kind of Ensemble effect because there's usually an ensemble effect in movies with, you know, semi big casts and in this one uh, It's it's really no exception because you have a lot of interweaving characters You know listeners to this show know I like interweaving plot lines and characters I kind of tend to say that a lot. There's an interesting thing about it where the characters interweaving It's never done wastefully when they interweave. It's for a purpose It's for building each of the characters not just one but both are built in the scenes where they collide And it also makes it really rewarding to see some of these arcs finish because they've been working for them themselves. You've seen other people come in to get in the way or to help out and they have their own arc. So you're trying to kind of maintain this focus of there's a lot of people wanting a lot of different things, but everybody's so driven in that and everybody's in their own lane that cross over very neatly that it makes it very easy to follow, very fun to follow. And I guess that's the main point. It's very, you get very invested in these characters. And so in that investment, it's fun to see them cross over. And that makes for some great banter. As mentioned, the three challenges, which is Carrie Elway's crossing over with the kind of three men I talked about earlier, are great. Uh, Robin Wright comes into contact with most of the characters, which is fun. Prince Humperdinck comes into contact with some of the characters, and that's great. And then you've got the random characters littered throughout, like Miracle Max and the Albino that, again, they're, they're all really memorable side characters. Because you don't like side characters that just go to waste or make one joke. All of these do have their shining moment, and they have it for a reason because they're actually a funny character in their own right. And I guess I don't even know if the IMDb genre when I did the Crash Course mentioned comedy, but this is certainly a comedy. I think that went without saying. Uh, But that's where this movie shines, in my opinion, obviously. It's got this great, fulfilling, charming aspect to it, but that's just completely cemented by how funny this movie is. Okay, as far as acting goes, best performance, Worst performance, and would I recast anybody? Best performance, I got to give it to my guy Wallace Shawn as Vizini. All of his lines are fantastic. You know, the writing does really assist this character, but the way Wallace Shawn delivers it with such confidence and with such phony intelligence and the way he totally rips other characters to shreds in that process is fantastic. Love Wallace Shawn in this movie. Uh, worst performance. I, as usual, don't really like to give out a worse performance kind of award. I just, it's really not fun, but that's where I do want to say that, as mentioned, a lot of these are kind of amateur performances. That's a poor word, but it's a lot of young actors trying something, and it works. That's what's funny about it, is this movie, with kind of actors who hadn't done too much, could fall apart because it's people, you know, just breaking themselves in in the realm of acting, but that's where the plot and the writing really comes and props them up, because you get this you know, you get this stilted fantasy fairy tale way about it that that makes it easy to kind of compensate for any overacting in any way because it's just the characters who are these, you know, big fairy tale archetypes. Is there a line delivered too suave by Wesley? Doesn't matter. The whole thing is this really suave character that's basically a storybook character so it it allows this movie a lot of wiggle room in terms of its acting but the actors don't really need that wiggle room they're still delivering some great performances all right so that means let's move on would i recast anybody certainly wouldn't cat recast carrie always or robin wright they're kind of perfect definitely wouldn't ca- recast manny patinkin definitely wouldn't recast andre the giant or wallace sean When it comes to Chris Sarandon and Christopher Guest, could you maybe rotate some people in and out of those just because they're kind of the lesser memorable characters in the midst of all the great protagonists and semi-protagonist, semi-antagonist characters? Yes, you could maybe rotate in and out Chris Sarandon and Christopher Guest with some other people, but they nail their roles as well. So there's not really too many people I would recast, which means that brings home acting, some good acting in this movie. Uh, Let's move on to directing. As always, in this directing part, we're not going to talk about specific scenes because the scene by scene breakdown is the spoiler full section. So, this is where we're just going to talk about overall style, overall pacing, overall composition of this movie, and would I want somebody else to direct this movie? So, let's talk about the style. As mentioned, this movie has this fairy tale quality to it. Uh, this is nailed by the direction because you get you get this real storybook f- feel to it. You got a very happy beginning. you got a very happy ending. You've got some interesting dark twists and turns that aren't really that dark but they're darker than what you've seen so far in the movie. Uh, you've got these characters who are uniting towards certain goals but are all really funnily defined. is funnily a word? I don't care. And, yeah, Rob Reiner just kind of nails the very lighthearted mood to this. This movie never takes itself too seriously, but in doing that, it makes this movie serious because it's just a fun story, but just having a very fun, clean story allows the audience easy access to invest in the characters. There's not this sense of importance to this movie. It's supposed to be a fun, charming movie, and that's what makes it so interesting and, and so easy to invest in. Rob Reiner basically has a very set tone throughout this movie of no matter what the plot point is there's a certain lightheartedness to it there's a certain charisma and suaveness to it there's never a moment where Rob Reiner lets the mood of this movie the tone of this movie dip this movie moves along like I said pacing is no problem here you get a lot of adventuring through the countryside, which makes it easy. The, the story's always moving. But then when you settle in at locations like the castle, you're flipping all around the castle. And it's, it's fun because you are so invested in all these characters that you want to go to the next one and see what they're doing or what they're going to do. So Rob Reiner really kind of laid out the story nicely of a really good progression to where the end, when everything's coming to a head but it's all coming to a head in different locations, you're fine with it because you're, you're wanting to see all these characters get paid off. The characters all have their own shining moments, which Rob Reiner did a good job of. There's no one really left behind, which I think is great. So yeah, I think that's where Rob Reiner really uh, shines, is maintaining this lighthearted mood that allows this movie to be very accessible and very enjoyable to watch, and makes all the plot points shine in the best possible way. Because if any of these scenes were to be taken too seriously, whether it be scenes regarding potential mortal wounding or anything like that, if any of those were going to be way too serious, it's clearly that. It would just be too serious for these kind of funny, over-the-top characters. So Rob Reiner really put together a great movie here, with just a style that incorporates a little bit of every genre, and still balances out that whole thing by having this umbrella lightheartedness, this umbrella campiness to the way the lines are delivered and to the actual plot points, and this just storybook aura to it. So great job, Rob Reiner. I would not want anybody else to direct this movie. I don't want anybody touching this movie. If they remade this movie, there is zero chance I would go and see it because I would only be disappointed. Let's move on to the writing. This is where it really slams it all home, all right? The writing in this movie is fantastic. The writing by William Goldman. A, the one-liners. They're just, every character always knows what to say. There's no one single comic relief character. Instead, everybody has their moment to shine. Everybody has their banter based on who they're around and whether that character is someone they're against or someone they're with, which is, you know, that seems pretty black and white, but it's actually not because everybody's goals, there's not one set protagonist. You're rooting for Wesley just as much as you're rooting for Inigo Montoya, so when they face off at the close of Insanity, you're like, who am I supposed to root for? And that's what I think is really cool about this movie is because you're so invested in the characters, it makes every plot point hit to their fullest, and that's where William Goldman really brought it home is that every plot point matters because there's not a single person in that plot point that doesn't matter. And yeah, of course, the, just the dialogue, the, like the banter is is great. I mean, if you, I think you could watch the Battle of Wits, and it's a master class in dialogue writing because the way Wallachon delivers his lines is great, but that's not to not think about, How good those lines are. There's kind of a lot of running gags that pay off throughout this movie. There's whole elements brought into this movie that you weren't expecting this comedy, but it is. Like when you bring in Miracle Max and they just make chocolate pills that perform miracles, like that's such a pure fun, enjoyable comedy aspect. And it's one that you weren't really expecting to just take this random detour into miracle pills, but it's such a well put together scene and a well written scene with great dialogue for another side character. That's not just forgotten that it's all fun. Every character has their you know lines that prove what their motivations are without doing it overly heavy handed. And I also like the idea of William Goldman, just saying, Hey, true love is a thing. So let's just make that its own thing in this movie. You're not just like questioning any sort of love between these characters or you're not questioning their chemistry or anything. Wim Goldman in just making it very blunt, like almost kind of breaking a screenwriter rule and just saying like, yeah, true love is here. These two characters are truly in love. Just accept that now and we'll move on with the story. It makes the whole plot make perfect sense because there's no motivation that could be stronger than what the narrator, who is Peter Falk, has just emphasized it is. The storybook aspect of Peter Falk actually reading this story comes through in that regard. All right, I could definitely talk about the dialogue all day. The plot itself, all the sequences, all the characters uh, William Goldman wrote, but also Rob Reiner put together very well, obviously. Um, So I could talk about that for a lot longer, but I think you get the idea. Okay, moving on from the writing, cinematography. Everyone who's listened to this show knows I really like talking about cinematography, and I'll be sure to mention some specific shots in this more full section. Uh, If you know this movie, you know this movie is beautiful. There's some great vistas and set pieces. The set pieces are great. They have this kind of fake quality to them, which continually is adding to that storybook aspect, and that's where the campiness, again, the campiness makes this movie shine. But we're always capturing those big set pieces. Anytime you're watching a character do something, the establishing shot is not just like, here's an establishing shot, wipe it away. You do get some great looks at these huge things, the Cliffs of Insanity, we're getting these huge sweeping shots where they're not cheating, we're watching people climb up these cliffs. Uh, We get the sword fight, they're not cheating, we're way zoomed out, the camera's a lot of wide shots through this movie and it allows you to get this whole awe of taking in this storybook land and watching the characters move through what's established to be a beautiful countryside makes this whole movie just very good to look at in that sense. And then as far as cinematography and kind of conveying messages and character moments and stuff like that, the rest of that is pretty standard, but you do get these kind of like glossy moments of slowing things down. In all these wide shots, you do kind of, once you've done a lot of these Vista things, and you are still flipping back to them, like with the sword fight, you always bring it back in tighter shots where we're in with the characters and they're doing their banter uh and there's a lot of great pure dialogue scenes i've mentioned it a couple of times the battle of wits where we're just flipping over the shoulders of these two characters watching their reactions watching uh their lines to each other and uh it just allows you to really focus on the dialogue because the the dialogue could carry this movie really the story could carry this movie uh the cinematography just has to be remotely there but it kind of goes above and beyond to be very beautiful, very wide. This movie doesn't cheat a lot, even though it has its, a lot of you know manufactured set pieces, we're still getting the full, the full look at them. There's a confidence to it of, hey, yeah, look at this huge thing we developed where characters are now gonna sword fight. It's awesome. The colors in this movie, I'll mention that in different scenes. Uh, while everything's kind of in a way like somewhat dull at certain scenes where there's a lot of just kind of standard colors and a little bit of gray and stuff. Uh, You also get these scenes of just great beauty of sunsets and, uh, you know, you get cool shots of a boat going through the water and everything has its own unique tint to it where there is kind of this like 80s gloss to some of it, but there's also just some pure, beautiful light captured. All right, let's move on to the score. This is a thing where the score can lose some people, but I think it just continually reasserts this kind of campiness and lightheartedness to this movie because the score is not your typical orchestral stuff. It's kind of a lot of synthesizers, some kind of acoustic stuff. It, again, also gives it this kind of aura to it of this... I don't know. Is there's like the regal sounds of trumpets and stuff is not usually trumpets so much as it's just synthesizers and stuff. But I don't know. Again, the music is very campy. It like very much emphasizes comedic moments and stuff with you know like certain beats. Like you know what I'm talking about. Where especially during the sword fight, where like somebody make a cool move and it'll just go, and stuff like that. Like it's not subtle at all. It sticks out in your face, and people might not like that. For that aspect as well as for the aspect that it's not like your typical regal music or orchestral music or even acoustic music. It's a lot of like more electronic stuff, but it somehow still fits this movie. That's what's weird. You would think this movie would need some very slowed down acoustic or orchestral stuff, but no, this synthesizer stuff hits because it's just cheesy. You're like, wow, this music's really cheesy, but this whole movie has been nothing but campy, not dialogue and campy characters, so it all works. Can you listen to it on its own? It's okay. I think where the soundtrack shines and listening to it on it, on its own is just being like, oh, this just brings me back. Like you hear a beat and you're like, oh, I remember exactly what happened at that part in the movie because it's so in your face in the movie. But it does have some good guitar. Like the main theme of the Princess Bride. I don't know if it has a name. It's a nice little theme. It's not like you know a theme you're gonna remember like the Star Wars theme or the Jurassic Park theme or most of John Williams' themes, honestly but it's good. It really fits the mood. The quirky tone, the storybook tone, how many times... It seems like all these extended episodes, I always have, like, one word that I constantly mention. I think it's the fact that I ramble on on each subject that I'm bound to use the same word a lot, but sorry. I will be using the word storybook and probably lighthearted and cheesy and campy a lot. All right, let's move on from the, uh, the score of this movie. Let's talk about the editing. Not too much done with the editing. Pretty standard. Um you know, speeds up when you want some action. Although sometimes you do get some long takes in the sword fight and stuff like that, and it makes it pretty nice because you're really watching this. As mentioned, the actors did their own sword fighting, and it's just really, you really respect that when you're watching it. So very typical editing. Not too much done with effects. There's more, actually, pretty much everything is practical effects. The fire swamp and stuff like that is 99% practical effects, I would assume. Uh, We know the rodents of unusual size are practical effects. So yeah, we're going to kind of uh, move on from editing and visual effects. There's not really much done with visual effects, and as far as editing for extra filters and colors, there's not too much done of that. I think there is a little bit... There might be some modifying some of the beautiful sunsets and stuff you see because they do seem that they have this extra gloss and like kind of shimmer to them, but nothing that really affects it too much. Pretty standard there. Let's go to costuming and makeup. Uh, movie really shines in costuming and makeup because you get the typical storybook stuff for... Robin Wright's character. And, you know, as you would imagine a swordsman to look like, you get Inigo Montoya. then you just get these, like, really cool, randomly memorable things. Like, the weird sweater that Vizini is wearing with, like, the interwoven yellow, red, and green is great. Uh, Robin Wright's, like, bright red dress is pretty cool. The Dread Pirate Roberts black uniform is pretty sweet. Apparently those masks are terribly comfortable. I think everybody will be wearing them in the future. And then you get just, like, the standard peasantry kind of clothing and rags and stuff that even people like Fezik are wearing. Fezik's has these cool boots that look way too small and soft for him, but just add to the gentle giant thing. And then you got the really involved, cool makeup and look of Miracle Max. Like Billy Crystal is recognizable, but somewhat distorted. Uh, The albino has this weird white skin thing with crazy hair and the contact lenses where, again, this movie took a lot of time to develop its side characters into really memorable people. So, yeah, costume and makeup, I really think that this movie should actually deserve some more praise than that. I'm obviously not super well-versed in the world of costume and makeup, but, like, all the costumes and stuff are very memorable. Um, they kind of stick out as being those characters. Nobody's forgotten. Uh, the colors are interesting, and the the kind of... The way each fits their character very well in terms of practicality or showing off, even for Vizini and stuff like that, makes sense. And yeah, the makeup. I mean, Miracle Max has like this weird white cracked face going for him. So does the albino. Okay, that brings us to the end of dissecting each and every little part of this, which tosses us to finances, and then I'll rate this movie and suggest why you should watch it, and uh, then we'll transition to the spoiler full section. But not quite yet. Let's first talk about finances now normally if there was somebody else here i would have them guess but no one is so i'm just going to read it to you fyi the finances thing tends to differ a little bit from probably what's reality i get it straight from imdb imdb sometimes has really oddly specific numbers down to the dollar amount that i'm like no way this is true sometimes you look at other sources and it's not what imdb said either but i'm just going to give you what that says and you can kind of get a frame of reference. So we had a budget of 16 million. It's an interesting budget. It's like semi small. The thing is I here's what I have a problem with is I I see that and I say it's small just because I know the budgets of like the Avengers movies and stuff like that. But you got to separate that out. It's like what's a big budget for a family comedy movie? Like let's just say we for some reason put this into family comedy. Those probably don't tend to get huge budgets, so is this big for that? I don't know. I have a very poor frame of reference on that, and I'm going to try to develop that as this show goes on. So, you know, think what you owe about $16 million, but opening weekend did not make that back. It made $206,243, and, you know, that's not looking too hot for a $16 million budget for an opening weekend. But as kind of mentioned, I think this movie has kind of had exponential growth in popularity where it took some time to get going and then just people love it now. Like everyone I know who, if I mention The Princess Bride, there's no one that hates this movie. I feel like there's kind of a small group that's like, this movie's okay. I feel like this movie is very beloved. And uh, for that, it ended up grossing $30,857,814 in the U.S. It's not as big as I think. I think there's, uh, there's got to be so much... DVD sales and later on rentals and purchases. And if we even count merchandise, probably I have a Princess Bride shirt. I have two Princess Bride shirts. So yeah, this movie, I mean, this movie has got to be doing a little bit better now. Not a huge financial success, but it doesn't need to be. That is obviously no gauge of how this movie is critically received. It's in the 250. That tells you it's something right there. Uh, and I think this movie, while critics may have loved it, may have not when it came out, I don't feel like looking into that. It definitely has a great popular acclaim to it. All right, let's move on from finances. It is time to rate The Princess Bride. If you haven't listened to CineStudy Study before, I always establish the scale as being 1 to 10 stars, but we change stars to be an item that represents the movie. There are so many objects you could use in this movie that are you know really fun to use, swords and miracle pills and uh, really anything else, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to rate it on... Uh, rodents of Unusual Size, even though I don't think they exist. And uh, this movie, this is a cine-study first so far. No, it's not. I take that back. and This is a cine-study second, but the first time this happened was episode one. If you've listened to episode one, you know what I'm about to say. Episode one was not the first merit pick. I gave Avengers Infinity War a pretty high score. Well, I'm going to give it away in a second here, uh, just because of the, the fan service aspect to it. But this is the first straight-up merit, straight-up I-love-this-movie, 10 ROUSs. Maybe I'll develop some sort of sweet sound effect for whenever I do an episode on a 10, but yes, you have been listening to an episode on one of my favorite movies. Uh, right now, as it stands, I have, I believe, 22 movies I've given a 10. A 10 does not mean it's perfect, of course, but a 10 means it is really good it is right there as one of my favorite movies the fact that i only have 22 of them kind of tells you everything you need to know it's a very selective group and as far as that group goes this one is way up high and you can go on my letterbox account which i'll mention what that is at the end of this episode and you can see exactly where this ranks in my favorite movies i eventually want to do an episode on that list where i can really expound upon my favorite movies uh, but just know this is up there all right this is way up there way way up there Princess Bride, fantastic, 10, R.O.U.S.'s, the first merit-based, like, actual good movie. I believe this is a great movie, 10, that I've had, because Avengers Infinity War was just me saying, hey, as a Marvel fan, this was freaking awesome. Okay, that leaves us with one more section, the Spore-free section, uh, which is the why you should watch it section. Uh, this segment is basically there for a very important reason. I think good or bad, you can always learn something from a movie, whether it's what to do or what not to do. So every movie has a reason to watch it, and man, does this movie have quite a few. I think the writing, as mentioned, kills it. Great dialogue, great banter. Uh, I think if you want to see like how to write a very clean story where every character has an importance. There's nobody who's there for no reason. Everybody has an arc. Everybody has a set end to their arc and a reason to be pursuing what they're pursuing and an ultimate consequence to that and the way those interweave. It's so pure in that. There's not a minute of wasted space in this movie. This is a tight, tight movie so writing wise it kills it and that also kind of means consequently directing wise this movie kills it how do we get shining moments for all characters how do we keep a straightforward tone throughout because one of the things about directing is it's really just mastering tone and rob reiner masters that here even though you get some weird elements in this movie whether it be the like actual threat of the rodents of unusual size or two people trying to kill each other in a sword fight or the straightforward comical aspects of fantasy lore or, like, torture. There's torture in this movie. Torture, revenge. I could play that whole monologue from Peter Falk of things that's in this movie. That's what that monologue, now that I think about it, sums it up perfectly. You read that whole monologue of torture, revenge, true love, fencing, fighting, all of that stuff. All of that is under the umbrella of this lightheartedness and this fun, just good nature to this movie and that's why it's kind of a great movie to look at for directing. Defining characters, which is kind of a bit of writing, a bit of acting, a bit of directing, that's something you can really take away from this movie. I've mentioned that so many times already, you know what I mean about that. And yeah, kind of the tone thing is a really good thing for this movie. How do we juggle all of these different plot elements of different levels of seriousness and different levels of, or different genres even, if we put them all under one umbrella into one cohesive movie, The Princess Bride absolutely destroys that challenge. So yeah, a lot to learn from Princess Bride, as well as it just being such a fun romp that everybody will enjoy in your family. The Princess Bride is great. So, 10 out of 10 to The Princess Bride. That's why you should watch it. Directing, writing, tone management, having great, well-defined characters with great, well-defined arcs. But that brings us to the end of the Spore Free section. Woo! I don't mind this one being long at all because it's a 10, and it deserves it. This movie deserves it. So this is my first crack at doing an extended analysis on a 10. I've been a little bit hesitant to do it until I, like, really understood uh, how to break these things down, and, uh, and really know what I wanted to talk about going into it. And hopefully uh, I provided some points for you to consider, and also just uh, satisfied my need to rave about these movies, which is a lot of times what these episodes are. But that brings us to the end of the spoiler-free section. So if you haven't watched this movie, and you don't want to know the spoilers, then I say uh, thank you for listening. We are about to enter the spoiler-full section. So thank you for listening, and if you're still listening, welcome to the Spoiler Full section.
4: The following audio will contain countless spoilers and
0: discussions of significant character arcs and plot points. You've been warned, don't ruin the movie for yourself. Unless, of course, you want to. Cine study is not liable.
1: All right, so before we jump into the spoiler-full section of The Princess Bride, I want to take a second and emphasize just how much of a personal favorite this movie is. I kind of mentioned it already with the whole uh, rating of the movie and the why you should watch it. But this is one of my favorite movies. I mentioned you can look into the letterbox list, but I didn't really stress that enough. I really want to say, like, this movie is it's very personal for me. I think it is for a lot of people, of just being a very fun, like memorable experience that you can always come back to because I really don't feel like there's a single moment or scene or character that I don't like in this movie it's so it really is a great story that I just have a lot more of a you know personal favoritism to it and I try to you know kind of take that out of the spoiler free section but now that we're moving to the spoiler full section which tends to be me just geeking out about scenes anyway I figured I should give it one last you know salute of yeah, this movie does mean a lot to me. This movie is great. I really love this movie. I could watch this movie at any point. I could stop recording this episode right now and go watch this movie again. Uh, it's, it's really one I can keep coming back to. So, you know, I just figured I'd mention that just because I love it so much and I wanted to say that again. But for now, we're going to do the scene-by-scene scene breakdown. If you haven't been into a spoiler full section before, uh, go through the whole plot And at the end, I'll talk a little bit about character arcs and themes and some of that story uh, narrative element kind of stuff. Let's just start. The movie begins with our introduction to the grandkid, uh, Fred Savage. Uh, He's sick, and he's just chilling, playing video games, and his grandpa comes to read him the story that he used to have read to him when he was sick by his father, and the same for his father before his father. And, you know, the typical my grandfather's before me kind of speech and this is the book known as the princess bride by s morgan stern he's going to read to the grandkid of course it has some great moments with the cheek pinch and some of the lines you know um, tv was called books stuff like that this this kind of scene has a a great sense of allowing you to buy in so first of all before i kind of talk about that i want to talk about the monologue he gives which i'll play right now
0: sports in it are you kidding Fencing, fighting, torture, revenge, giants, monsters, chases, escapes, true
4: love, miracles.
1: So this monologue that uh, I just played for you, obviously, and now can't reference on my own because I'm going to do that in post. uh, Some meta stuff going on here. Uh, It's a great little monologue. It sets you up, and and what I was kind of saying before is this allows you to buy in in multiple ways. First of all, you're buying in emotionally with just the grandpa, grandson. He's sick. We're going to read him a story. You're already getting emotionally invested in that just because it's a nice little familial relationship. But then we kind of, with this monologue, we get this kind of collective foreshadowing of, hey, all of these things are in this book, which means at any point during the rest of this movie, at some point during the rest of this movie, you will see all of these plot points torture, revenge, fencing, fighting, all of those that I just said a little bit out of order. So you're gonna see all those at some point. And so it again it's kind of a foreshadowing and that makes all of those moments feel like payoffs. So when Wesley's eventually in the pit of despair, you're like, oh here's the torture we we're talking about and you get that, you know, small little payoff, good or bad, but either way it calls back to the beginning. And there's a lot of things that call back uh, you know, Wesley seeing the six-fingered man and saying someone is looking for you, uh, that kind of comes to mind, but I'll get to that. Let's stick with uh, where we are in the plot. So, so yeah, you, you buy in. He starts reading the book uh, about Princess Buttercup raised on a farm. She takes joy in tormenting the farm boy because she's a horrible human being, and she uh, basically just gets the same answer every time. As you wish. So this is, you know, a nice little gimmick, one of those classic things, lots of, you know, Love stories have this one line or one mantra that they always come back to, and that's kind of this movie's. Uh, and I, I like it. It, you know, it's, it's not too much to say about it. That hasn't been said about as you wish. It's used a lot. It's just it's such a you know sweet little sentiment. But we'll kind of move past that. Um, I will say that we then figure out he's saying that, and somehow that connects to he loves Buttercup. But you know, we kind of take this part for granted. This exposition is a little bit of okay. We're going to set up before we really get going. But it's necessary because, like I mentioned in the writing section, William Goldman just has true love as just the concept that that you just have to be like, yeah, I'm all in. And so you just kind of have to take that for granted. But it allows all the rest of the events to have much more weight to them. We get a great shot of Wesley and Buttercup kissing at sunset that just looks beautiful. Just their silhouettes in front of the orange sun that is setting. Really like that shot. Uh, But then we get an interruption. The grandkid's like, come on, man. Is this a kissing book? The grandpa's like, "Nah, man, do you want me to read this or not?" And he's like, "All right, fine, keep going." And so, so we push on with the story. Wesley is leaving for whatever reason, and uh, she's worried he might never come back or something like that. You know, a classic worry. And and he's like, "This is true love. You think this happens every day?" You know. So there's a lot of these lines between Wesley and Buttercup of like, "No, what we have is special." And again, it's William Goldman has this idea that you just buy into that just lets him carry throughout the whole book as being the purest romance of all so that all of the ideas of the characters trying to get back with each other, you realize how necessary that is because this is the truest form of love. We don't need to spend a lot of time showing it. We can just tell you, and usually that's kind of a screenwriting cheat of just telling you they're in love and not showing it, but I think it works here because it like kind of has that book element. It feels like a literary kind of thing. But then we get Wesley apparently was attacked by the Dread Pirate Roberts, grandkid with a nice little one-liner of murdered by pirates is good, and uh, then we get Buttercup in a very sad setting uh, sitting there and saying, I'll never love again, foreshadowing, of course, Lady Gaga at the end of A Star is Born. I'll never love again. She even locks herself away for a few days. Uh, so that's kind of just thrown in there. But then we kind of cut to five years later. Uh, I kind of always forget this time jump even happens, but no worries there. Humperdinck, the prince of the land, uh, the kingdom known as Florin, has chosen Buttercup to be his queen, but of course she doesn't love him. You know, a, a very classic storybook concept of potential kings and queens and not loving each other, and, you know, one of the people in royalty who should be with the royal family loving the small farm boy, the poor farm boy. And, you know, it's a classic idea. I like how this movie takes a lot of those very stereotypical fairy tale storybook elements, and he, you know, William Goldman keeps them in there but sometimes he'll even parody he'll do a couple of things he'll either parody them he'll elevate them to a new level which is surprising or he kind of points out just how funny some of those things are that's a little bit rare in this movie there's not a lot of meta critique but sometimes you get a few not none quite yet but I'll see if I remember to talk about it later either way uh we got that classic classic conflict forming uh, and Buttercup rides off on her horse, and she comes across some poor, lost circus performers. These are, of course, Vizini, Fezik, and Inigo Montoya. Uh, cool shots of her riding. There's like a good ground level shot of the horse approaching before it stops, and then we see the poor circus travelers who are like stacked up in perfect levels of like Wallace Shawn, then Mandy Patinkin, then Andre the Giant, uh, and it's like kind of stilted in a way because it's like they're they're standing in there like almost like a superhero pose especially if you look at Inigo with his like hand on his sword and stuff Uh, but again a lot of these things these kind of stilted parts of it kind of just continue to add to the feel that this is a tale being told more than something that was actually happening anyways no one's there to hear Buttercup scream which she doesn't even scream Andre the Giant just pinches her neck and she is out they are apparently going to try and frame rival kingdom Gilder and incite a war by like Killing the princess on the Gilder frontier. Uh, I do like how Vizini says this is a prestigious line of work, um, but Fezik not a big fan of killing the innocent. And when he says he thinks that he's not a big fan of killing the innocent, Vizini drops the massive roast that we all have come to know and love.
0: Hippopotamic landmass.
1: And this scene is when you're starting to get that walk I mentioned by Wallachon, this, like, really frenetic way about him. I've used that word so much now, but this is when you really see it, when he's kind of bouncing all around the ship as they prepare to go, and he's scolding Inigo and uh, Fezik. Um, so after scolding all of them about, you know, you were drunk and I picked you up, you used to wrestle in Greenland and I picked you up, and now they're, you know, setting up to incite a war. We don't know, really know why Fezik or Inigo are there quite yet. Vizini's clearly the mastermind. But we do get some rhyming. I'm not sure why this is in the movie. This is one of those things that's like, you know, why is this in here, but it works? And I think it's just the quirky comedy to it that makes it work. And the rhymes are funny. Plus, just the delivery by Andre the Giant is, again, so just like innocent and like straightforward comedy. People really love the rhymes. They're, I kind of always forget it's even in this movie, uh, but it is still a fun little scene. Uh, so, cut to later on, they're sailing at night. And we get the first of a quite repeated line when Vizini is saying anybody following us would be absolutely inconceivable.
0: Why are you doing that? Making sure nobody's follow us? That would be inconceivable You' are sure nobodys follow us as I told you, it would be absolutely totally and in all other ways inconceivable.
1: but he's like, uh, you know, why do you ask about somebody following us, and you go and he's saying oh, i just used, I just looked back there and I saw something." And we look up, and there is a ship indeed tailing uh, Inigo, Fezik, Vizini, and the kidnapped Princess Buttercup uh, as they're sailing to the Gilda Frontier. And it's like, oh, no. It's sort of, oh, no. First of all, it's interesting, right? Because you are rooting for Buttercup. Buttercup, at this point, is the protagonist of the story. You're like, Buttercup, oh, no, come back. But then you don't want her to marry Dick. She's in a tight spot. But the thing is, you're not really rooting for Vizini, Inigo, or Fezik, so we'll kind of by process of elimination, you're rooting for Buttercup. Uh, the thing is, you kind of clearly see that Fezzik and Anigo are not at the same level of Vizini and evil mastermindedness. Uh, and so you're, they're kind of these weird in-between characters, not necessarily protagonists or antagonists quite yet. Vizzini may be edging towards the antagonist side. But that's why when somebody's following them, it's so fun to watch this because... You, are, you have no idea what could happen because no character has been established as the lead character. There's no plot armor here. You don't really know what's going to happen with all of these characters, who could possibly be following them, if they're going to be good or bad for Buttercup, if they're going to be good or bad for the other three, uh, and just what kind of stakes that has. And I like the kind of unpredictableness of that. Anyways, uh, you know, Vizinha just thinks it must be some local fisher having a night pleasure cruise through eel-infested waters. Seems like a likely scenario to me. But then they hear a big splash, and Buttercup is trying to swim away after hearing of the eel-infested eel waters, which is surprising, and someone falling. I guess she's capitalizing on the chaos. And uh, we find out Fezek only doggy paddles. And that's when you get this absolutely fantastic sound from the mouth of Wallace Shawn. It's just this, it's just this exasperated, like, oh, what am I going to do? Uh, nobody can actually help me. What do I got to do, everything myself? I don't know why I just spent so much time talking about this one vocal interjection by Wallace Shawn but it's kind of a testament to how much I like Wallace Shawn and his character in this movie but then he kind of switches gears from the crazed mastermind into this form of intimidation as he leans over the side of the ship and he's you know talking about how The uh, eels shriek when they're near you, and they're going to get you better, Cup, and stuff like that. And he actually has this creepiness to him that I really like, that while Sean can shift the gears so fast between this comedy and then, again, grounding the audience to, oh, yeah, this guy's actually kind of scary and is definitely trying to kill her at some point in this movie, Uh, which is funny because there's a lot of those stakes in this movie that are dealt with, with lightheartedness, which is what I mentioned with the great direction and tone maintenance of Rob Reiner. Anyways, she's about to get straight sniped by an eel, um, I, I did forget to mention, I like the shots on this ship. You get some nice levels when an is watching what's falling, and people are kind of littered across the deck, ego in the foreground looking out over the waters. And the shot of someone falling is cool with the eerie moonlight kind of coming over the water and the ship in the background. But back to the eels, you get a shot of the eel coming right for Buttercup, jaws open, kind of your classic lunging creature shot. Uh, but the grandpa who's reading this story interrupts, and he's like, she doesn't get eaten at this time. You, you look very nervous. I, she does not get eaten. And, and the kid's like, yo, I'm not nervous. Get out of here, Gramps. And so Grandpa resumes reading the story. He has to find his place again, which is always the case. He always loses his place, which I don't know why. But anyway, the scene is kind of chopped up, which is funny, as he's trying to find his place. He's like, yeah, Buttercup jumped in, the Shrieking Eel here's the intimidation part. And so you're kind of skipping through these in editing, and editing. Then, and then you get the club of uh, Andre the Giant just rocking the Shrieking Eel. But uh, Vizzini's like, whoever it is chasing us is too late. See? The Cliffs of Insanity! That's right, they are sailing towards the Cliffs of Insanity. I love the shot of the Cliffs of Insanity. If you've ever seen uh, a Wes Anderson movie like the Grand Budapest Hotel, you know that there's shots where things look like models and paintings combined when you're getting like a grand view of the, the hotel. And I have to think that the Princess Bride is right in that category. When you get the, the Cliffs of Insanity, they're clearly not real cliffs in this one shot. It is like very clearly either a model or a painting or somewhere in between, especially with the ruins on top look really fake, and then a superimposed ship at the bottom. It's definitely not real, but it gives it a, a fantastical feel. Uh, which fits right into this movie, allows them to kind of cheat on this, but they don't. We get some great shots coming up that I'll mention, but I I like the shots of the Cliffs of Insanity because you look at them and you're like, this is ridiculous. It's just this massive, sheer face, and it's kind of a a comedic visual in its own right. Uh, We now get a great sequence when uh, the strongest man in the world, I guess, is Fezik, and he straps everybody to him, Wallace Shawn, Inigo Montoya, and Buttercup, and they start climbing a rope up the Cliffs of Insanity as they harbor and this is what I was talking about. They don't cheat here. We get actual shots of people actually climbing cliffs, and it's awesome. Like, these are real cliffs. I think they filmed this in, like, Ireland or Scotland or England, like, actual cliffs. And we watch as Fezek climbs with people on his back. I guess they accomplished that part of it with wires. But they're on location for this, I believe. And we also see the man in black uh, is, is who is on the boat. There's a guy in black, and he starts tailing them up the rope. And Wallace Shawn is like, this is inconceivable, inconceivable. that this guy could be following us up this rope. Only the strongest man could make it up this rope, but yet he gains because Fezzik is carrying multiple people and the man in black is only carrying himself. The music during the climb is pretty fun. Uh, You know, The music throughout all of the action scenes is pretty fun. It's a little campy and in your face, but I don't mind it. Fezzini comes, he cuts the rope when they make it to the top so that the man in black can't follow them all the way up the cliff, but then they go to the edge and they find that the man in black, with his tremendous strength, whoever he is, has indeed latched onto the cliffs and is still hanging there and uh this is again absolutely inconceivable he didn't fall inconceivable
3: you keep using that word i don't think it means what you think it means
1: and this is where we get one of the great lines from this movie of uh you keep saying that word i don't think it means what you think it means Cool shot, kind of from the lower close perspective of Fezik, Sean, and uh, Inigo Montoya. I like how I'm just not even calling him bazzini But it's just kind of a lower perspective looking up at them as they are freaking out that the Man in Black is still there. And the shots of the Man in Black are cool, too, seeing him hanging from kind of the up shot. Uh, it's pretty nice. Uh, but Inigo Montoya says, you guys go, I will stay, and I'm going to fight him. And uh, I'll do it left-handed because I'm an absolute swordplay beast. We already know Inigo Montoya knows something that the Man in Black does not know whenever he finally gets up there. We get some banter between Enigo Montoya and the Man in Black when uh, Inigo Montoya's hates waiting. And so he's bantering with uh, the Man in Black like, you know, could you uh, hurry up? And he's like, I'd appreciate it if you would make yourself useful and throw me a rope and not do this. And Enigo uh, Montoya's like, I suspect you wouldn't want my help because you know I'm only waiting around here to kill you. So, I mean, it's all just great dialogue in this scene. And uh, I like the, that does put a damper on our relationship. But what happens is Inigo Montoya, uh, you know, gives his word as a Spaniard, that's no good, but he gives his word on the soul of his father, Domingo Montoya, that the man in black will reach the top alive and no hesitation. The man in black is clearly a man of integrity and understands the word of other men. And uh, he allows him to give him the rope and they get to the top. Uh, Inigo Montoya is like, I'll give you a moment to rest. Some great dialogue here. Uh, The big question here. As an audience member, do you notice that this is Carrie Elways? Do you know that this is Wesley? The first time I watched this movie, I did not, but that's because I was kind of not really paying that much attention, and I shamed myself for that uh, for my original viewing years and years ago of this movie. Now it's obvious, of course, you know it, you know it, but I'm wondering if there's anyone who really does fall for it. The mask does a good enough job of not being way over the top where you're immediately thinking, who in the world could this be? And you're trying to deduce it the whole time, but it's not uh, too little where you're just like, oh, that's Wesley. It's right in the middle where you don't think twice about it. You're like, oh, this is just a disguised guy that I'm not going to think too much about who it is but is also, you don't really know who it is. So it's it's good. I think he blends in for a while. You might eventually figure it out of who could be tailing him, what other characters have we met, or is this someone new? But it is indeed Wesley. Uh, we get a, some great talk with Inigo Montoya when he kind of spills out his whole backstory of a man, he asks Wesley if he has six fingers on his right hand. Wesley does not, but he You know, he says that his father was killed by a man with six fingers when his father used to make swords. The man with six fingers came, wanted a sword. Uh, He was denied by Inigo Montoya's father, and so he killed Inigo Montoya's father. Inigo tried to fight him, and he failed miserably. Uh, First of all, the music in this is good. There's kind of an Inigo Montoya theme that I've mentioned that's pretty nice. It's kind of trumpet stuff uh, with a little bit of acoustic guitar. Uh, But Inigo Montoya says he failed. And he was left with two scars. The shot of that is cool. It's kind of synced up with the music a little bit in this, you know, triumphant backstory way. Uh, And then we get the famous moment when Inigo says a line that, you know, everybody should know
3: I will not fail. I will go up to the six fingered man and say, Hello. My name is Inigo Montoya. You killed my father. Prepare to
1: die. And this why we get a really nice, you know, close shot, really tight shot of just Inigo Montoya's face as he kind of gets this look on his face of, you know, this is what he wants, this is what he's wishing for, and he knows that when he finally is able to say it, there will be this power to it, this this fulfillment to it. But for now, Inigo Montoya says he works for Vizini to pay the bills. You know, there's not a lot of money in revenge. And that's all funny. It, it does not undercut anything in either in any way because we spent enough time just now getting invested in Inigo Montoya's backstory, and I think it's great. It's, again, one of these things where it's a little bit of show-don't-tell. I'm guessing in the book there's actually the stuff with Inigo Montoya's father. It might even be actually depicted. Uh, in this, it's just kind of like we're going to establish a clean motivation of he's trying to kill his father's murderer. It makes perfect sense in this fantasy land. I could I've said it once. I could say it a million times. The kind of backstories and motivations are usually telling you, not necessarily showing you or, you know, flashing back or anything like that, but it works because it's part of this fairy tale narrative, this, you know, we're telling this grand tale. We're not going through all of the crazy motivations of stories because, let's face it, fairy tales are very surface level. I mean, Snow White just has Prince Charming. His name is Prince Charming. Tells you all you need to know. He's not a developed character. He's a guy named Prince Charming, but we get now. Of course, one of the best scenes in this movie is the sword fight. Again, Manny Patinkin and Cary always actually dueling it out. And I could mention so many things in this scene. So you get the, you know, I hate to kill you, I hate to die banter, which is great. They start off, you know, a little bit hesitant, but then the music bursts. The, I like the music in the scene a lot. Again, it's not something you sit back and listen to, but it's something that perfectly syncs up with the scene that you're watching. And every beat, if you were listening to it on its own, would bring you back to this scene and the exact moment in the scene. Uh, we get some banter about strategies and how each has studied swordplay a lot, and they know what counters what. Uh, and then when it appears that the man in black might have the upper hand, we get the lefty switch from Inigo Montoya. He knows something that the man in black does not know, and that's that he's not left-handed, so he switches to the right hand, and he starts taking down the man in black. They uh, make their way up a staircase because they're in these ruins. I forgot to mention they're in these ruins, and uh, he also is not left-handed is what you also come to find out. Great reveal there. It's kind of just this great fun and running gag throughout this scene of uh, switching hands and the stunts they pull. And uh, this allows uh, Carry Elwes to now get the upper hand. Inigo Montoya has to do some crazy acrobatics to run and get his sword. Carry Elwes does a full flip with his sword with like a drum roll to it. Again, this kind of campiness that works. Inigo Montoya's asked, you know, he's got to know who you are. And uh, Man in Black, no one of consequence and get used to disappointment. They continue to fight. A uh, great moment where Inigo Montoya's sword flips into the air and then he catches it right on the music beat, which is awesome. There's a trampoline in this scene that if you watch, you'll suddenly notice when both characters use it. It's pretty cool, fun little detail to look for. Uh, it blends in with the scenery. There's also a mattress coated with sand that if you watch another part, I think it's when they're talking about uh, Capifera and all the different uh, strategies, somebody lands on that mattress. And again, that's another detail you can look for. But that's something I want to say is You know, most movies, they might say, oh, you can see the trampoline, or oh, you can see the mattress, we better, you know, crop this a little bit. But this movie doesn't cheat in this scene. It really takes you far and wide, away from the fight. You know, sometimes you get in close, but for the most part, you are seeing the full bodies of both men and half of the scenery around them. So the production design is given its full due here, and of course, the choreography that both actors spent learning it's allowed to shine, and it's great. I mean, it, it can shine because it's so well done. It can be shown in full because it's so well done. It doesn't have to cheat with shaky cam or close shots or anything like that, and I really appreciate that. It's a better action scene than you get in a lot of action movies. Anyway, uh, they continue to fight, and the sword catch happens, all that. Uh, but then Inigo Montoya, surprisingly, is overpowered, and this is one of those big moments of like, oh, wow, we thought Inigo Montoya was the best in the land. He was so confident going into this. And now it's clear he knows he's at the mercy. He's like, kill me quickly. Like He he gets straight rolled by the Man in Black at the end of this. And it still looks like the Man in Black has not broken a sweat. So this is the first. It's crazy because, again, as I've mentioned, it's you don't really know who to root for in this fight. You don't know who the Man in Black is, but clearly is trying to save Buttercup at this point. Uh, you know, Inigo Montoya is a good guy who's just trying to, you know, make up for his father's legacy, and you know he has a very driven goal, and he's kind of this character that you also want to root for. So you don't know who you want to win this fight, especially since one of them could die. But, you know, there's a mutual respect between these characters, just like the audience members kind of have a mutual respect for both characters and aren't really one side in this fight. You're just enjoying the show, which is also great. You you know, normally scenes of fighting where there are no stakes, like usually you have to be emotionally invested in a protagonist because you don't want to see them defeated by the antagonist. In this, it still works. You're watching both characters. You're not necessarily rooting for one or the other, but because the choreography is so good and just the concepts of the scene are so good, you're just sitting back and enjoying the fight with uh, no pressure. The kind of no-pressure feel of this continues to keep this movie at ease and lighthearted in the face of a lot of serious things that William Goldman tries to work around to have the plot points he wants. Anyway, Wes is like, I would sooner destroy a stained glass window than an artist such as Nigomontoya, Montoya, but he can't have him following him, so he knocks him out, and Nigomontoya Montoya left the scene, and we don't really know uh, what he's going to do next. We just know he is knocked out. And the man in black moves on. Okay, so we get another Vizini inconceivable.
0: Inconceivable!
1: And since it's clear that Inigo failed, Vizzini says to Fezik to, you know, hide behind a rock and just smash his head in with a rock. That's easy. That's his way. Which way is my way? That's his way. And uh, Fezik thinks that's not very sportsmanlike, but he's going to do it. Uh, He's going to go hide behind a boulder, which he does. He chucks a rock at Wesley, but he, he purposefully misses. And this just kind of establishes that Fezik wants to drop his rock and fight like civilized people. No swords, no weapons, as God intended. So it's a pretty interesting battle where basically Fezik is starting out as just a wall. Wesley might as well be fighting a wall at the beginning. He runs into him and doesn't even move Fezzy. he just stands there and takes the hit. And, yeah, it's basically just Wesley making no progress. But the advantage is Wesley's quick, so he vaults off a boulder, gets into, like, a headlock thing, and he starts strangling our boy Andre the Giant. Andre the Giant's like, you know, this ain't cool. I usually fight gangs for charity, that kind of thing. You know, he fights multiple people. And so his moves aren't quite up to par against an individual, and he's strangled and knocked out. Wesley's like, I hope you dream of large women, and I will be off. I don't envy the headache you have. Fun little scene, of fighting, you know, it's kind of overshadowed by how good the sword fight is and how good the next scene is, the next of the three challenges. This one's kind of bookended by two really good sequences, which makes it a little bit forgotten, but it still holds up in its own right. Fezik with some fun dialogue, and the fighting's fine. So, you know, not too much to talk about here. But we cut back to the ruins, and Prince Humperdink Humperdinck is tracking everyone basically he's trying to find buttercup he's on the trail uh he has this gusto that i was talking about of how he thinks everything's a trap which is why he's still alive and uh he's tracing steps he's like one of them ran off this way one of them ran off that way and he knows which one was the victor which one was the loser uh so you gotta i mean he does have some hunting skills uh these are apparently really elaborated on in the book kind of thrown by the wayside here nobody really cares about it but either way he's on the trail but we cut back And I don't really know what I can even say to set this next scene up. I can can say a few things. One, I believe this is one of the greatest scenes of all time. Inconceivable! That sounds like an exaggeration, but in in the pure comedic land, this one rules in general engaging scenes of just tremendous execution. This is right there. And, uh, I mean, that's really all I can say. This is, of course, the battle of wits. And it's, you know, every single line in this is fantastic. There's not a single line in the scene that isn't funny or that isn't pushing the whole concept of this scene, the kind of conceit of this scene forward. Bizzini making himself look like a fool uh, in a way that has unnecessarily complicated speech to it. Wesley just sitting and enjoying the show. Buttercup, just a hostage to the side. Maybe the one weak point in the scene, she's just sitting there. But, I mean, what what else is she going to do in that scene? She's hoping someone can rescue her. Uh, But either way, this is the battle of wits, and I think I really just need to play this entire scene.
0: So, it is down to you, and it is down to me. If you wish her dead, by all means, keep moving forward. Let me explain. There's nothing to explain. You're trying to kidnap what I've rightfully stolen. Perhaps an arrangement can be reached?
2: There will be no arrangement, and you're killing her. Well, if there can be no arrangement, then we are at an impasse.
0: I'm afraid so. I can't compete with you physically, and you're no match for my brain. You're that smart. Let me put it this way. Have you ever heard of Plato,
2: Aristotle, Socrates? Yes. Morons. Really? In that case, I challenge you to a battle of wits. For the princess? To the death? I accept. Good. Then pour the wine. Inhale this, but do not touch.
0: I smell nothing.
2: What you do not smell is called Iocane powder. It is odorless tasteless dissolves instantly in liquid and is among the more deadly poisons known to man
1: so at this point iocane is poured and i'm just going to skim over this because not much happens
2: where is the poison the battle of wits has begun it ends when you decide and we both drink and find out who is right and who is dead but it's so simple all i have to do
0: is divine from what i know of you Are you the sort of man who would put the poison into his own goblet or his enemies? Now, a clever man would put the poison into his own goblet... because he would know that only a great fool would reach for what he was given. I'm not a great fool, so I can clearly not choose the wine in front of you. But you must have known I was not a great fool. You would have counted on it, so I can clearly not choose the wine in front of me. You've made your decision, then? (laughs) Not remotely, because Iocane comes from Australia, as everyone knows. And Australia is entirely peopled with criminals. And criminals are used to having people not trust them as you are not trusted by me, so I can clearly not choose the wine in front of you.
2: Truly, you have a dizzying intellect.
0: Wait till I get going! Where was I? Australia. Yes, Australia. And you must have suspected I would have known the powder's origin, so I can clearly not choose the wine in front of me.
2: You're just stalling now.
0: You'd like to think that, wouldn't you? You've beaten my giant, which means you're exceptionally strong. So you could have put the poison in your own goblet, trusting on your strength to save you, so I can clearly not choose the wine in front of you. But you've also bested my Spaniard, which means you must have studied. And in studying, you must have learned that man is mortal, so you would have put the poison as far from yourself as possible, so I can clearly not choose the wine in front of me. You're trying to trick
2: me into giving away something. It won't work.
0: It has worked. You've given everything away. I know where the poison is. Then make your choice. I will, and I choose. What in the world can that be? What? Where?
2: I don't see anything.
0: Oh, well, I I could have sworn I saw something. No matter.
2: (laughs) (laughs) What's so funny?
0: I'll, I'll tell you in a minute. First, let's drink. Me from my glass and you from yours.
2: <laughs> you guessed wrong.
0: You only think I guessed wrong. That's what's so funny. I switched glasses when your back was turned. Ha <laughs> ha, you fool. You fell victim to one of the classic blunders. The most famous is never get involved in a land war in Asia, but only slightly less well known is this never go in against a Sicilian when death is on the line. Ha 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 ha
1: Okay, so that was the battle of wits. As you could tell, every single line is hilarious. Every single line is important, in my opinion. I mean, it's it just continues to build that Vizini is not too smart. But I mean, I could I could go in way in depth and just break down this whole scene. And honestly, talking about it has inspired me a little. I might eventually start a series where I tackle individual scenes. But uh, for right now, I'm gonna let's back off of that. Um a couple of little things to mention though. This the cinematography kinda of sucks in on time at times when Vizzini might be onto something, you kinda of pan in on him, you zoom in on him a little bit, uh and get in his head a little bit more. But really for the most part it's just the camera flipping back and forth. Wesley Vizzini, Wesley Vizzini. Vizzini saying things that don't make sense, Wesley's reaction shot of just the subtlest of smirks, uh knowing the true reveal of the scene. And I mean again, I could say anything about this scene, it's hilarious. It's so straightforward and done so well by just leaving the actors to their own devices. I really could talk about this scene at end, but it just it summed up best by saying fantastic writing and fantastic direction for this pretty long scene. A scene that's yeah, it is pretty long in the grand scheme of the movie. I guess if you if you looked at it, but it's every second of it flies by because it's so fun. Um, but towards the end of the scene, a couple other things to, to praise. I already mentioned, well, Sean's delivery of his dialogue is fantastic, but also his expressions where he's freaking out and building because he thinks he knows it. Also, when they're about to drink, he does this weird smile, like, go ahead, I know what's going on, but go ahead. And and that's a really fun smirk to see. When the final explanation by Vizzini is given of, the classic blunders, I mean, that's just hilarious. But when the secret is revealed, uh, you know, that, that once Vizzini's death happens, which is really funny because he just stops laughing, falls over, a little impractical, but absolutely hilarious, especially given his, like, way overconfident behavior and screaming and ranting, that's awesome. Uh, but the secret is revealed that Wesley has spent the last few years building up an immunity to Iocane powder, and uh, there was Iocane in both glasses. So Vizini would have had to really think outside the box to win that battle of wits, uh, which is something I also like, that the payoff to this scene of it's not just he chose wrong, but there was a whole different level that just proved that Vizzini was way overestimating his smarts. He, he made the logical way of reasoning in and out of each and every cup, but he never thought to think about what the true stakes were, and, you know, of course it wouldn't just be left to chance like this. So, cool, cool thing, continues to seal that Vizzini's character is not as smart as he says he is. That really kind of closes that door. Uh, Humperdinck's on the trail again. He, he he passes the where physique fought Wesley. Um, but now we get a scene with Wesley and Buttercup. Uh, they're just standing on a ridge. Wesley's trying to act really tough and masculine. I'm not sure why, but he's like intimidating her and like scolding her about things of like the promise of a woman. What does that mean? Like he just kind of acts unnecessarily uh, strong and tough and mean. Uh, but I think it's to make a point uh, because he is a little salty. It's kind of. Uh, ignored because of how strong the true love part of this movie is, but he's a little salty at first when he, he- learns about the Humperdinck stuff. And and he really milks that with Buttercup. It it's like, becomes clear to him that she doesn't love Humperdinck, and so he kind of gets on her case for that. It's going to happen more in a second scene. But between those, Humperdinck, one more time, passes the location of the Battle of Wits. He uh, he spots Iocane, and he knows what Iocane is, which is funny. Buttercup reveals that she knows that Wesley, the man in black, is the dead Pirate Roberts, uh, after a funny little random, like when he's <laughs> saying hardly complimentary, I don't know, I just found that funny. But anyway, she's not too happy. She's like, You killed my love. And uh, Wesley gives a great line about how life is pain, and anyone who says something different is selling something. Again, just every line in this movie is beautiful. Every line in this movie is hilarious. As far as screenplays go, I said it in the writing section, but it's just a fantastic work. I mean,. Seriously, every line in this is great. There's not a single line that I don't like in this movie, many of which end up being so quotable just by how perfect the word choice and, like, syntax and, like, literally breaking it down into how the line is said is so perfect. Uh, the man in black says, oh, I remember the farm boy that you're talking about. He simply said, please, I need to live because of true love. And uh, Wesley doesn't really rub it in, but he's like, yes, yeah, So the police caught my attention. I remember him, uh, but I kill a lot of people, and uh, he's dead. But he continues to kind of get on her case about Humperdink, like marrying a new lover so fast after your other one died. And she's like, no, nah, I died that day. And he's like, "Nah, you're horrible. Why would you do this? And I, I think he's just trying to make a point. He, he, I think he is. He has a little bit of a chip on his shoulder over the whole thing. He doesn't really take the time to understand uh, that, you know, Humperdinck kind of this is a forced marriage, arranged marriage kind of thing. And uh, it, it kind of adds a little bit of depth to his character, but it's quickly moved past as Buttercup shoves him over the hill and he says, As you wish, as he tumbles down, and Robin Wright's like, Oh, shoot, my bad, and realizes that it's Wesley. First of all, I want to give a quick writ of praise to the stunt doubles in this scene. There's extended takes of people like absolutely rolling down hills, getting thrashed around, and uh, the stunt doubles are pretty good at making it pretty authentic because they're actually rolling, especially if you look at the end. Whoever's doing the stunt work for Buttercup's character starts doing more like actual somersaults and is trying to kind of maintain control. Uh, but, you know, I praise the stunt doubles, I like the stunts in this this just tiny uh, sequence. Um, but they, you know, embrace at the bottom of the hill. I like the shot. We get kind of a dolly zoom as Wesley kind of comes up closer to Buttercup once they've both winded up on the ground. It's a really good shot. I really like it. Uh, just kind of, it's like the grand reunion kind of shot to it. Uh, Humperdinck knows that they're going to head straight into the fire swamp, uh, but in that scene before... Uh, Wesley says that, like, you know, death can't stop true love, only delay it for a while. The grandkid still wants to stop the kissing. I think that's right here. And so they skip ahead to actually entering the fire swamp. Buttercup's like, you know, the fire swamp is no good. Wesley's like, nonsense, you're just saying that because no one ever survives. Uh, His boat is on the other side because he still is the Dread Pirate Roberts. But then we get in the fire swamp. Fire swamp has great production design. Again, the shots, very wide, taking in the whole environment You know, we'll come in close on Wesley and Buttercup every now and then for their conversations, but a lot of times we get some, you know, sweeping shots of the practical effects of the quicksand, the vines, uh, definitely the flames and the rodents of unusual size. We're really seeing that in full, and you got to give a lot of respect to the production design for putting in the detail where Rob Reiner can do that and can do it without it being horrible looking. I mean, of course, there's some cheat shots throughout this movie, like the Cliffs of Insanity shot I was talking about before they actually climbed the cliffs. But that's what's funny. All of them are then redeemed by real practical stuff, which is awesome. Once they're in the fire swamp, Buttercup's dress catches on fire. It's handled very adeptly. they got to avoid the popping. But uh, Wesley, clearly, he's, he's the ultimate handyman, really. And then he gives another show, Don't Tell a Thing. I've talked about this way too much. You get the idea. Same applies here. Uh, When he's doing the Dead Pirate Roberts story, he's saying the Dead Pirate Roberts is not actually the Dead Pirate Roberts. He's a guy named Ryan, and the guy before him, he was Cumberbund, and the guy before him was the real Dread Pirate Roberts, and each of them has retired, and now I'm going to retire and give the mantle of Dread Pirate Roberts to someone else. I love this idea, just the idea of it, of like a pirate passing down the mantle and uh, training people so that he can pass down that mantle, and we always have to have the same title. It's just a fun idea. You could make a whole movie about that, really. Uh, but the, the way Wesley tells the story is pretty funny. He's kind of flying through details, but the repetition of things like I'll kill you in the morning really makes it an intriguing story, allows the you know show-don't-tell thing to not apply too much. But as he's finishing up the story, uh, Buttercup plunges into some quicksand. Wesley dives into Savor with a vine. We get like an eerie silence with a rodent passing and stuff, which is like half comedic, half like, oh my goodness, where's the other characters, which is nice. Uh, And then they come back out. I really like the shot when they finally emerge. It's like a very triumphant hand emerge, grab the vine kind of thing when they pull out of the lightning sand. The cinematography has a lot of moments. All the shots that I wrote down were a lot of ones that were, you know, triumphant, storybook, great, grand, glorious moment stuff. And the cinematography really shines on that front of, you know, emphasizing that part of the story. Uh, Then he starts talking about the other stuff, the other dangers of the fire swamp, which is funny because then he gets to runs of unusual size. Rodents of unusual
2: size? I don't think they exist. Ah!
1: And then we get our rodent battle. A huge, massive rodent attacks Wesley. First of all, practical effects look great. This thing still grosses me out. It's not scary per se, but it is like freaky. You're like, oh, give it away. This thing is disgusting. Especially as it like takes some huge chunks out of Wesley's shoulder and stuff like that. His shoulder gets all messed up in this process, and it's just gross as like the jaws and the tongue thrash around. It has a massive tongue. And for some reason, practical effects of things like this that are, like, practical effects that are slimy, they really freak me out. Stuff in Alien, this, it's, like, far-ranging, as you can see. Just, the, just those two examples alone could not be more different, but they are slimy practical effects that just, ugh, I hate it. Which made it really effective, a kind of gross but fun battle with, you know, the classic Princess Bride music of, you know, random synthesizers and trumpets and stuff. But he does some cool spin moves and absolutely fries, the rodent in one of the fire swamp popping, uh, exploding flame things. So that's cool. They finally get out of the fire swamp. Uh, they strike a heroic pose as they negotiate with the fact that they just got ambushed by Humperdink and Count Rugen. Uh, Wes was like, you wished to surrender to me? Very well, I accept. But uh, he's like saying, no, nah, death first, we're going to battle. Buttercup's like, oh, no, people are setting us up here. And she says, I want a no injury promise. You take Wesley, return him to the Dread Pirate Robert ship. Uh, and don't injure him, and I'll marry you because this is awesome and all, but otherwise you're about to kill us, as I can see, with the people in the woods. So Humperdink gets the best of them here. Buttercup really takes the quote of, Uh, love can only be delayed to heart, and she's like, you know, we'll figure this out, but right now we can't just die, so let's, uh, let's move on. Humperdinck immediately betrays Buttercup's promise, just continually adds, like, this guy sucks, he doesn't even love, he doesn't even love Buttercup enough to fulfill her one true wish. So Humperdinck says to Rugen, put Wesley in the pit of despair, and I'm like, oh yeah, love the pit of despair. Uh, but Wesley's about to be knocked out. And that's when we get the first, like, ah, full circle things begin. You know I love full circles. I don't talk about full circles enough. So most of my favorite movies have one or two full circles. I love full circles because this is not really a full circle, but it sort of is. But he sees Count Rugen, and he's like, oh, you have six fingers on your right hand. Someone was looking for you. And then he gets knocked out, and you're just like, oh, shoot, dude, this is all coming back around. I really like it. And yeah, those are the kind of plot devices I like, when things come back around, when things weave and and come back out and then weave again, because now we know Inigo Montoya is being brought back into this story, of course. Uh, But cut to the Pit of Despair, with a character, as mentioned, great job of carving out memorable side characters here. We get the albino. He has a funny walk. He has a funny uh, voice. Where am I? The Pit of Despair. Don't even think.
4: (coughs) (coughs) Don't even think about trying to escape. The chains are far too thick. And don't dream of being rescued either. The only way in is secret. Only the Prince of the Count and I know how to get in and out. Then I'm here till I die. Till I kill you.
1: His voice is fantastic because he starts out with this raspy, uh, you know, crazy dungeon guy voice, but then he just coughs, he's got dust in his throat, and he's just a, you know, normal British guy, which is pretty cool. So he's a funny character, funny actor. Uh, and I, you got to give credit to him, Mel Smith, I think is the name. Uh, Pit of Despair production design, pretty cool. The machine looks awesome. The big cave looks pretty fun, uh, and it just seems like a fun little set piece to have for a part that you know is just kind of a little reference point. of we need to come back to Wesley every now and then and show that he's being tortured because he's kind of uh, you know stuck in one place for a little while now. Oh, I forgot to mention, when we see the six fingers on Count Rugen, when Wesley's like, someone's looking for you, I like the shot of the six fingers. I don't know why. It's a very straightforward shot of it just casually resting on his clothes, but it like, I don't know. I like that they made it its own shot. You don't have to really dig to do it. It's just like, oh, yes, the full circles begin. Uh, Wesley's like, why are you curing me if we're about to be tortured as the al- albino says you're going to be tortured? He's like, I can handle torture, and the albino just gives him like funny shakes of yes and no. Uh, so funny little behavior there. Uh, nobody withstands the machine, which probably should have a trademark. I gotta like the machine. Uh, so that's the kind of introduction to the pit of despair, which I really like. We cut to buttercup. She's very sad. Apparently her father's, uh, failing health, or I think it might be Humperding's father. Either way, whoever's father died and, and the kid interrupts and she's like, and it's the, the day of the wedding or the day before. And Fred Savage interrupts. She's like, what? This isn't happening. She can't marry Humperding. And, you know, the grandpa's like, who says life is fair? Where's that written? You know, you're kind of in the same shoes as the kid. The kid's a little bit more naive. You know this is all going to shake out. This is a fun storybook movie, but the kid does not. And it kind of brings it back to the storybook thing, lets you remember that. Because at the end of the day, they have to have some arcs with the kid and the grandkid. And just bringing it back to that every now and then keeps it going, keeps it fresh, keeps it funny. And yeah, just keeps it in the back of your mind, really, because there's so much happening in the actual plot. You need that in the back of your mind, the evolution of the kids starting to really care so that you can have the final, final payoff at the end of this movie. But we'll get to that, of course, at the end of this. But anyway, we go back to uh, Princess Buttercup, who's like there in front of all the people again. And uh, one lady just ruthlessly boos her. She's kind of uh, disgusting looking and calls Buttercup the queen of putrescence and we're like oh Buttercup you're getting fried like the shot of Buttercup entering people taking a knee and there's like a halo light behind her pretty cool but uh we realize this is a nightmare and she hasn't actually married Humperdinck yet and the father is fine and the wedding's still a week away and the kid the kids I like they stay in a voiceover over the movie over the actual fairy tale stuff and the kid's like see and the grandpa's like yes you're very smart shut up uh Buttercup tells Humperdinck yo if we marry I'm killing myself, which, again, is one of these really dark elements that's brought into this movie that I always forget. People generally seem to forget. People think of this as such a lighthearted movie, and then you forget that this is even in the movie. This, torture, other you know intense battles, uh, all of that. But it is, and it's a plot element that kind of has to make sense because otherwise Buttercup is just a sitting duck for the rest of this movie until Wesley returns. She needs to have something where we're actually worried about her, and she's not just being dragged along by Humperdinck without any resistance she just needs something to be able to keep coming back to her and being like, oh, no, there is a sense of urgency to this because not only could she just get married, you know, you might think then she could just seal the deal and get married and then go back to Wesley or something. But no, she could actually just die and the whole story ends. So we need those stakes, even though they're a little bit out of left field. But Humberdink, you know, folds sort of. He says, yeah, we'll call off the, the the wedding and uh, and we're going to alert Wesley who's sailing away because I returned him to a ship and definitely not to the pit of despair. We'll tell him to come back and uh, y'all can get married, which is like, okay, Humperdinck, you have some sympathy. But it's not really the case, because we head over to the Pit of Despair. Humperdinck is walking with Rugen, and it becomes clear, a big plot twist that I always forget, Humperdinck actually hired Vizini; He hired him to incite a war, uh, because I guess he just wants war of the kingdoms, and he wanted Buttercup dead, but now he's like, I'll just kill Buttercup myself. It'll be even more breathtaking. Uh, And then we get a really funny line, which is, first of all, the fact that Count Rugen's name, which is a very intimidating villain's name, his first name is Tyrone, is the funniest first name for some reason to me. But he gives a great line about how he's got, uh, you know, a wife to kill and Gilder to frame for it. I'm swamped.
2: Tyrone, you know how much I love watching you work. But I've got my country's 500th anniversary to plan, my wedding to arrange, my wife to murder, and Gilder to frame for it.
1: I'm swamped. So Count Rubin goes to the pit of despair alone. And so, yeah, there's kind of a plot point here with He Hired Vizini that's kind of lost in the rest of this movie. It doesn't really come up again. Uh, There's a lot of these little details in this movie that you could remember, but... They don't really serve anything, you just know we need to stop the marriage, that's the main goal, and what characters can we bring into that? And we're about to bring in some more in a little bit here with Anigo and all of them, but not quite yet. First, we get Rugen entering the pit of despair, apparently he has an, a deep abiding interest in pain, and he wants to take like detailed doctor's notes, he's like, so be honest how all of this makes you feel, and he moves the machine up to one, and I love the machine, because first of all the the shots are just really funny it 's like we see water rushing you're like, what is this possibly doing there 's random suction cups on wesley 's body, and I like how like non specific the machine is. He just has suction cups on him and just starts freaking out. It makes it not as serious as it could be like if it was way too serious, it would feel way too i mean just that like if it's if we 're watching something really happen or just assuming something is really happening. Uh, we might think this is way too serious as an audience member. But the fact that we're just watching him thrash around, and we don't. I mean, we're not seeing any physical effects besides him just whimpering, it makes it a little bit lighthearted even though you're still feeling for Wesley. But either way, uh, it's funny when he drops it back down uh, and he asks Wesley how he feels and he just gives a whimper. And I think Count Rubin says something like, oh, thank you, or like, interesting or something. We cut back to Humperdinck in the castle. His main gatekeeper, Yoan, comes in. There's a little armrest gag where Yellen comes over to his seat and, like, kneels down and puts his arm on uh, Humperdinck's armrest, and Humperdinck just looks at it, and then he moves his arm, and Humperdinck puts his arm there instead, which was pretty funny. Just Humperdinck's got to have this superiority. He's got to have it. Uh, but he's like, Yellen, I want you to arrest all the thieves because there's word that my wife's going to get murdered, and that's not cool. So I guess he's using this as a way to, like, Cut down on other people that could possibly at any time in his life be against him by just saying, oh, they're probably involved in the murder, all the while planning to do it himself. It's good though because it transitioned us back to the Thieves' village uh, where Inigo is there. He's just slobbering drunk, laying there, uh, waiting for Vizini because they said if they got split up, they would meet here. Uh, Nothing's happening. The Brute Squad is trying to take all the thieves and put them in jail like Yellen was just ordered to do. But turns out who just joined the Brute Squad because they were also out of work? Andre the Giant. Fezik. So he finds Anigo, and he, like, knocks out the other Brute Squad guy, giving Anigo problems, and uh, they fill each other in. Anigo, uh, you know, gets word of Rugen and all of that, and how they found the six-fingered man, uh, because I think Fezik heard it from somebody else in the castle, because, you know, Rugen was associating with Wesley and all that, and Obviously, Wesley told him someone was looking for him, so word's starting to get around about the revenge plot, and Inigo's like, all right, we can do this. We just need help, because apparently they're going to put everybody in front of the gate for this wedding because of this murder plot. So yeah, they go to get help. They're like, we need strategy. We have the steel, we have the strength, but we need a strategist. I guess that's a word, maybe. Uh, Strategist. Doesn't matter. Uh, But they go to get the man in black. They're like, we got to find the man in black. He obviously is the superior person in all this, so we're going to get him. Humperdinck continues to scheme. He's like, I want the gate mega guarded. And he tells Buttercup, we're going to honeymoon tomorrow. We're going to send our whole armada and sail out to sea tomorrow morning. And Buttercup's like, uh, except our four fastest ships, right, that you sent to get Wesley. And Buttercup realizes, nah, this sucks. Humperdinck did not send those ships to go get wesley so he she's like no wesley is probably going to die or something and so she starts roasting humperdinck saying he's horrible and all that and he's like, I wouldn't say such things, and locks her away, and just in his rage, sprints over to the pit of despair. I guess he says some weird throwaway line of, like, no one should love. You guys have a love that would be not found in centuries, and you should not have that, or something like that. It's a really poor motivation. He could just be like, you're just ruining everything, aren't you? That, that would be a better line to have put there, but it, can, it continues to give Humperdinck this false sense of self-importance. Uh, but what's really funny is it's not supposed to be funny, this next part. Uh, he ups the machine to fully torture Wesley. But it's actually hilarious because he throws this thing up there and Tyrone, Count Rugen, just bursts up. He's like, not to 50. And then you start getting these T-Rex yells from Wesley that just echoes throughout the whole kingdom. I found this to be super funny. At the same time, it's like, oh, no, he's on 50. But the way the way Christopher Guest delivers the not to 50 is hilarious. And the way Wesley's scream is edited or whatever, with the, it's, it literally just sounds like a dinosaur, and you cut to like the whole kingdom is hearing this that's hilarious
2: you truly love each other and so you might have been truly happy not one couple in a century has that chance no matter what the storybooks say and so i think no man in a century will suffer as greatly as you will not to 50 Ah!
1: Somehow Inigo's like, uh, this is the man in black screaming because who else has the cause for ultimate suffering? His wife, is his lover is getting married tonight. So, you know, it makes sense. The reasoning makes sense. It's, you know, it's something where if you look at it, you're like, oh, that doesn't make any sense. But in passing, it's like, oh, yeah, you're right. Cause for ultimate suffering. That must be him screaming. Go, Inigo, go get him. And it's it's fine. Fezzik tells everybody to move, which is funny. And they go to the pit of despair where they heard the scream. The albino's about to go in. He has a wheelbarrow. That will come back later. Uh, but they're like, you know, his memory of how to get into the Pit of Despair. So Physic hits him over the head, and the albino just passes out. Jogs him a little too hard. Uh, but that's when you get this really cool, actually, uh, like, emotionally heavy moment. This, or uh, Just not really emotionally heavy, but a moment with weight. Inigo kind of prays to his father. He's like, guide my sword. I need your help. Like, we get some great cinematography there with, like, beams of light coming down over Inigo, and it gives it this real heavenly feel that, like, you know, something important is going to happen here. He stands. He like holds out his sword. He's being guided around. He's walking around a little bit aimlessly, but you know, like you think there's this, you know, intervening purpose to this, this like Deus Ex Machina kind of thing going on. And it works because you know how attached Inigo is to his father, and you can tell Inigo's really driven. And so you're hoping that can pull through again. Plus, you got the Anigo theme song, which is kind of great. Uh, but he realizes that it, it's not going to work, and he like stabs his sword in the tree and hangs his head in shame. And in doing so, accidentally hits the secret knot that opens the door in the tree to the pit of despair which so it's a funny moment because he's like you know guide my sword and that all is you know emotionally heavy like you know this could work we need Domingo Montoya you know Inigo's worked so hard for this you really want to see him succeed to see him fail for a second is not great but then you know he kind of miraculously opens it and you realize oh there is a purpose to this which I really like so they go in and uh it's they just kind of drop a bombshell Fezzik's like he's dead and Inigo's like oh that you know life's not fair Grandpa's saying he's not dead to Fred Savage. Don't you worry. Uh, but this kind of no fair stuff. I'm gonna talk about this at the end when I really tackle themes. There's a there's a is life fair kind of theme running throughout this movie, which is interesting. I'll talk about it later. All right. So they go to Miracle Max. They're like, we need to buy a miracle. And uh, I'm just gonna I'm gonna play a lot of these lines more than likely. But I'm also gonna rip through them myself because there's so many great jokes in here. Uh, you know, it's, first of all, it's Billy Crystal. I already mentioned it. it's a great performance, but the dialogue really shines here. Go away!
3: What? What? Are you the Miracle Max who worked for the King all those years?
4: The King's thinking son fired me, and thank you so much for bringing up such a painful subject. While you're at it, why don't you give me a nice paper cut and pour lemon juice on it? We're closed. <laughs> Hey,
3: will well, call the brute squad. I'm on the brute
4: squad. You are the brute squad. We need a miracle. It's very important. Look, I'm retired. Besides, why would you want someone the king's stinking son fired? I might kill whoever you want me to meet the miracle. He's already dead. He is. Huh? I'll take a look. Bring him in.
1: He does a funny arm drop with the dead Wesley, the, the arm just like flops to the ground and he's like, "Well, I've seen worse," <laughs> which is a really great line. Uh, he says uh in a weird way, this is one of those quotes that has slowly brought itself into my own lexicon. Uh, and that's like, uh, and he goes like, you know, something, he's dead. How are you going to do that? And, he, and Billy Crystal goes, oh, look who knows so much. I say that all the time, and people never know what I'm talking about, but I still say it, and I know, and it makes me happy.
4: He's dead, he can't talk. Ooh, look who knows so much, huh? Well, it just so happens that your friend here is only mostly dead. There's a big difference between mostly dead and all dead. Please open his mouth. Now, mostly dead, he's slightly alive. Now, all dead, well, with all dead, there's usually only one thing that you can do. What's that? Go through his clothes and look for loose change. Hey, hello in there. Hey, what's so important? What you got here? That's worth living
1: for. He's trying to figure out if Wesley uh, has anything worth living for. To which Wesley slowly says, "True love." And uh, and Billy Crystal's like, "True love is the greatest thing in the world, except for a nice mutton lettuce and tomato sandwich." He says, uh, "You know, Wesley Wesley's probably playing cards because he clearly did not just say true love. He said to bluff, and so he he said to believe, and that's clearly to bluff. And so he was playing cards, and he cheated, and that's when." The witch comes in, and she's not a witch, she's his wife, but she comes in, and that line I just said was another line there, Uh, and he says, I'm not listening, in a funny way, and I'm just ripping through these, I know, but that's because there's so many. I'm not listening! The humiliations galore, I mean, all of these are good. The way he says, I'm on the job, everything. I love all the lines in this movie, the chocolate coating, uh, you know. and I guess I just literally just now said I love all the lines in this movie. That's true, I meant to say this scene, but this movie, that's true as well. Uh, and then we get have fun storming the castle. Bye-bye,
4: boys. Have fun storming the castle. Think it'll work? It would take a miracle. Bye-bye.
1: So I'm I'm assuming I might have played one or two of those, or I might have in post said, You'd re- you read all the lines. Why are you going to put try and waste time putting these in in post? So uh, hopefully you were either treated to some of the Billy Crystal, Crystal delivery or me embarrassing myself reading all of them. But either way fantastic scene of dialogue uh you know the the behavior and mannerisms of billy crystal seal the deal but the dialogue is fantastic so wesley is revived after they force feed him the chocolate pill and uh and he goes like let me explain no there's no time let me sum up uh and he says we gotta you know jump in i gotta kill the six finger man you gotta get your wife we gotta break up the wedding we gotta break through this gate all of that and uh, Wes is like, well, that doesn't leave much time for dilly dallying, which is a funny line. Uh, I like the shot where they look over the castle wall because I forgot to mention we transitioned here to in front of the gate of the foreign castle, and uh, it's kind of like the Wizard of Oz when they're like scouting out the the Wicked Witch of the West hideout. It's, I, I feel like this is definitely not a tribute to that, but that's just what it reminds me of, especially because in Hoodlinked, there is a tribute to that, and I don't know, I just I, I don't know why I'm even thinking of Hoodlinked right now, but still. It is a funny head turn, and uh, the way Wesley behaves, because he's, like, totally flopping around, he doesn't have his strength, is really funny, he, like, throws his arm around and rolls his head around. Uh, when they list their assets, and he goes, like, you know, my steel, your brains, Fezik's brawn, that's really it. And then, uh, it's just, I love this part. I was, I, this was a joke I didn't even realize until the most recent rewatch. I, I don't remember this joke at all, but it's hilarious when... Uh, when Wesley's basically like yeah we got nothing uh you know if we had a wheelbarrow then we'd have something and he was like oh we can get a wheelbarrow from the albino and then Wesley's like why didn't you mention that with our assets like of course like duh no brainer we need a wheelbarrow uh and then he's also like if only we had a holocaust cloak and Fezzy when he got it miracle maxes so there's two more full circles right there albino came back into play miracle max came back into play speaking of miracle max I didn't even really talk about the idea of we can just have miracle pills that bring people back from the dead. It's another one of those fantastical things. Uh, I think this was kind of one of the examples of just parodying like plot armor and like things in fairy tales of things always working out, and this being the most extreme example of that possible, which is kind of hilarious. Uh, and also just bringing in a fun side character, proving again that true love is like such an amazing concept in this movie. It's kind of a Deus Ex Machina thing, but it's it's so it's handled so well with such comedy, and you know it is with such importance of like it's a noble cause that they need to bring him back from the dead, and you're rooting for everybody in this movie at this point, and ego, Fezziwig, Wesley, Buttercup, pretty much everybody to take down Humperdinck and break down the wedding and take down Count Rugen. Uh, it's pretty awesome. Uh, and it, it makes you go, okay, that's fine. Again, it's it's one of those campy elements to this movie that I really like. And again, it, it was it was a little bit satirical on fairy tales, in my opinion, which I thought was cool. It might not have been intended that way, but I think it is. Um, but they have the Holocaust cloak and all that, and you get a nice little one-liner from Fezzik. He's like, "Anigo, I hope we win. <laughs> and that's it. Buttercup still thinks Wesley's coming back from him. Humperdinck's like, nah, you're out of your mind. He's not coming back. That's a little tiny scene there. I don't remember if this happened before or after, but we also see Anigo, uh, Wesley, and... Uh, Fezzy like all put their hands in together to like do this thing and Wesley again has his like floppy arm into the middle of that which is funny Uh, and then we get another side character I didn't even mention this one at the start and that is the priest.
0: Marriage. Marriage is what brings us together today.
1: Guy's hilarious again, it's such a standard role that they were like, Let's how can we make this comedic? I don't know, just give them a really stupid lisp. And it's such a dumb choice when you think about it. And it was probably like it seems like such a cop out choice to talk about it in principle like this, but it's so funny in the movie that I love it. It gives all these little things extra comedy. And I love when, when people take little things that are just, just need to be plot advancement details and they still add comedy to them in comedy movies, they really go the extra mile. This is a good example of that. But then we get the whole scheme that Wesley was apparently plotting out. Fezzi pretending to be the Dread Pirate Roberts by riding in in a wheelbarrow that an is pushing and then lighting him on fire while he's wearing the Holocaust cloak. And that way, all of the 60 men who are in front of the gate, which I didn't, I failed to mention is a really funny shot when all of them are just clustered in front of the gate. It's kind of hilarious. Other funny shot I forgot to mention, when they go to Miracle Max's, and Max is just looking through the kind of porthole in his door. That's a funny close-up on his face, like, inside the door. But yeah, everybody's clustered in front of the gate. Uh, and they come in and intimidate everybody with the dead Pirate Roberts stuff. And in hearing all of this chaos... Humperdinck sends Rugen out to uh, investigate. You know, it's it's clear they're trying to rush this along. And with that, Humperdinck says, "You know, just skip to the end. Say man and wife. Say man and wife." And uh, and he seals the deal again to to Buttercup. He's like, "Look, Wesley's dead." And she's like, "Then why are you afraid?" Which is nice little dialogue there that doesn't take extra time to continue to solidify that buttercup's holding out hope but it's also interesting because she turns around and tries to kill herself in like the following scene it's like you clearly just showed you have some hope so a little bit of a flaw in the in the character actions there the, the attempted suicide part is kind of unnecessary she should have just returned to her room all sulking like like this sucks but she, there's clearly some you know ounce of hope in her in, that this is all going to work out so her abandoning that immediately doesn't make too much sense funny gag with the gate key, Yellen's like I don't have any gate key, the guy guarding the gate and goes like Fezik, tear his arms off and he's like oh you mean this gate key and then it begins, they infiltrate the castle, which I love the interior of the castle, looks really nice uh, and they come in and they round a corner and who is also rounding a corner in front of them but Count Rugen and his men and uh, Rugen sends uh, his men forward first and Inigo takes them down really easily in a swift little move uh, and that's, this is when you get, like, the epic moment, all right? This is the epic moment because you get a great shot where we're in on an ego. He gives the famed monologue that, you know, we're, we're waiting for because it, it's time. He found the six-fingered man. He gives the hello speech, and uh, it's fantastic. It's this feeling of epicness, this feeling of payoff from, you know, what he said he's going to do and what he's clearly been driven to do this whole time. And what's even better, though, is the way once he finishes his speech— he, like, kind of slowly takes the stance with his sword out and his other arm up. And not only is that pose, like, the epic, you know, hero pose, but it's also, like, so satisfying. He, like, kind of swells up to this of, like, oh, ego's finally getting what he's been trying to do. Like, he's about to face a 6 Finger man. This is the real deal. This is when you really realize how invested you were in ego without even thinking about it this whole time because you've been thinking about Buttercup and all them. But it all kind of is shortchanged by Rugen running away. It doesn't undercut the drama at all. I love this scene of Inigo, you know, finally coming face-to-face with this and giving that speech and, and getting ready to fight. I love it. It's a good shot, too. It's a good shot of Inigo winding up, getting ready. So Rugen runs, Inigo follows, and then you get, wow, this might be the realest panic. A, in this movie, B, like, such a accurate depiction of, like, total helplessness panic. And that's when Inigo runs into a door, that Count Ruben just went into, and he can't get this door open. It's locked. And Mandy Patinkin absolutely destroys this scene in acting. He's yelling like crazy. His voice is cracking. There is such a real, tangible fear and panic when this happens. It's one of those things that you like want to also get out of your seat. You're like, no, 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 no. This can't just like stop right here. This this is beautiful acting by Mandy Patinkin. I know I sound crazy saying that because it's such a small moment, but there is such panic induced in this one tiny little plot point of there's a locked door that it's crazy i think this is the realest panic i've ever seen in a movie like horror movies action movies all that there is this like no he's getting away the way inigo behaves in this and i i really hope i can find a clip because i think this is like honestly masterfully acted for just these three seconds or whatever it is it's really good (laughs)
2: I can't leave him alone. He's
4: getting away
1: from me, Fezzi. Please. Smash. Fezzi. Wait a minute. Thank you. But Fezzi comes and comedically just bashes in the door, and Anigo keeps going. Buttercup is heading back to her, her suite, and she tells the father, I'm killing myself in the morning, and the father's like, won't that be nice, because he's not paying attention. Uh, we get some more montage of Inigo chasing, which is fun, because it's like a shot, a stationary shot of a room. Rugen runs by, slight delay, Anigo runs by, which I just like that style of doing chase scenes. It's just fun. It, it, it feels very film-like and movie-like, but it's so uh, fun. Fezik returns to where he left the week, 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 Wesley to help Anigo, and uh, he's gone which is not good, but we're going to get to that in a second. We come back to Wesley and Rugen, and uh, whew, this is, you know, another one of those plot points that's like, oh, no. Rugen comes down some stairs. We get a nice-looking shot where we kind of come in on his leg, and he pulls out this dagger from his boot and continues. And then Inigo rushes down the, the stairs, and we get a cut to Rugen, and he's, he throws this knife and then cut back to Anigo, and it's just the knife plunging right into Anigo, and he slumps against the wall and it is isn't just like the door thing, this is another one that just kind of knocks the wind out of you. You're like, oh man, we just keep getting so close and we can't, uh, we can't do it. We can't pull it off. So Inigo slumps there uh, and and Rugen just gets a nice intimidating monologue that really cuts deep into uh, Inigo, no pun intended. But we go back to the, the suite with Buttercup and we get the attempted suicide. I don't really want to touch too much because it's just kind of a random plot detail that I already kind of made myself clear on. Uh, but wesley interrupts her with an interesting line and uh and she rushes over to him and like starts embracing him and stuff and he's like gently because he still has no strength which is funny but it's another you know it's their reunion again not as good as the one on the hillside when they both fall but this, this one's fine well, we come back to inigo and since Anigo montoya is uh captain america and can do this all day with his overdeveloped sense of vengeance uh he keeps trying to fight he like stands up and then falls back again which i really like the shot we pull out we come back in we we pull out we come back in when he tries to get up which is again like just conveyed through the camera movement this glimmer of hope but no that's not going to work he's, he can't do this but uh Rugen comes in for the kill and Anigo parries him uh, he's still slumped again he just parries him by raising his sword and it's it's kind of sweet and then Rügen tries again he parries him again and the music's swelling with this and suddenly Anigo you know, jumps up, and he says his monologue. He says the, hello, my name is Inigo Montoya monologue. He says it very quietly and slumps against the table. Uh, but then he comes back, and you get these, like, I, I, it's executed to the best, uh, like the best example I can give is like Pirates of the Caribbean. If you think about it on Pirates of the Caribbean, whenever there's a sword fight, there's like huge triumphant beats with each clang of the sword of like, dun, 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 when they're like fighting and stuff like that, they like always sync up with the sword. And that happens here when Inigo's blocking Rugen and then saying his monologue again. And it's this beautiful interchange of Enigo swelling up his monologue for the second, third, fourth time, music coming in as they fight again. And clearly Inigo's getting the upper hand. This scene builds so beautifully.
2: Good heavens, are you still trying to win? You've got an overdeveloped sense of vengeance. It's going to get you into trouble someday.
3: is Ññigo Montoya. You killed my father. Prepare to die. Hello. My name is Diego Montoya. You killed my father. Prepare to die. Hello! My name is Diego Montoya. You killed my father. Prepare to die.
4: That. Oh. Ah. Hello, my name is Inigo Mantoya!
0: You killed my father. Prepare to die. No.
3: Offer me money. Yes. Power to Promise me that.
2: All that I have and more. Please, offer me everything I ask for. Anything you want.
1: Rugen's like, stop saying that. You're throwing me off my groove, which is not cool. But Inigo keeps coming at him. He's landing some stabs. Again, it's this triumphant, uh, triumphant moment. It's awesome. Uh, he, he's hitting him in the chest, and then he gives him the same scars that he has had on his cheeks the whole time from failing the first time he tried to fight Count Rugen all those years ago. And then Inigo kind of gets this you know, half ego play, half like, I need to tell you. you know, it's about to be case closed. And that's like, offer me money. Offer me power. Offer me anything I ask for. And Inigo gets the kill shot, which first of all looks sweet. Uh, because he like grabs Ruben's hand and then comes in with like a like undercut jab sort of thing, and it's it looks awesome. But it's all a sweet payoff. It's such a short little fight scene, but the escalation of it of Enigo from total loss to total victory is so satisfying for the viewer. So I love that. And then he just kind of saunters off. You know, it's kind of like they didn't know how to end the scene, but they need to get him to the next place and show that he's not just staying there. But it's kind of like also shows that Indigo's like, oh, you know, what do I do now? And that's going to come in, you know, a verbal form later on. But uh, it makes sense. So, fantastic scene here when he finally gets the kill shot on old Tyrone. Wesley figures out that Buttercup never said I do, and she's like, oh, it never happened. But then Humperdinck jumps in and he's like, no, nah, get out of here, Wesley. I don't like you. And Wes is like, nah, I don't like you either. And so Humperdinck's like, all right, to the death then. And then we get an amazing monologue.
2: To the death. No. To the pain. I don't think I'm quite familiar with that phrase. I'll explain. And I'll use small words that you'll be sure to understand, you warthog-faced buffoon. That may be the first time in my life a man has dared insult me. It won't be the last. To the pain means the first thing you lose will be your feet below the ankles. Then your hands at the wrists. Next, your nose. And then my tongue, I suppose. I killed you too quickly the last time. A mistake I don't mean to duplicate tonight. I wasn't finished. The next thing you lose will be your left eye, followed by your right. And then my ears, I understand. Let's get on with it. Wrong! Your ears you keep, and I'll tell you why. ...so that every shriek of every child at seeing your hideousness will be yours to cherish. Every babe that weeps at your approach, every woman who cries out, Dear God, what is that thing, will echo in your perfect ears. That is what the pain means. It means I leave you in anguish, wallowing in freakish misery forever. I think you're bluffing. It's possible, Pig. I might be bluffing. It's conceivable, you miserable, vomitous mass. But I'm only lying here because I lack the strength to stand. But then again, perhaps I have the strength after all.
1: love this monologue again it's one of those monologues like the battle of wits or some of these other ones where there's so many details that the actor just rips through really fast that kind of already gives it a sense of comedy but then you realize that these are fantastic insults that wesley's spilling out here it's just kind of a huge roast competition but it's not much of a competition hump just gets absolutely destroyed that's when we get an awesome part where wesley another triumphant music swell there's never any like lost point there's like a thing in storytelling i forget the name of it but it's like the final challenge where the hero really looks like he's gonna bite the dust that kind of happens 20 minutes before this once we get inside the castle it's all wins 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 with the exception of inigo almost dying which is kind of a big exception but we'll just let that slide Uh, and this is that example music swells uh, he stands up despite his no strength, and we get an awesome shot where he raises his sword straight at the camera and tells Humperdinck to drop his sword. It's, again, just like a great hero moment, and I love the shot. It's awesome. So he stands like an absolute champ, and we get a funny little comedic bit where we're zoomed in on Humperdinck's face, but we just hear the clang of a sword as he clearly drops his sword, as Wesley ordered. And then he, like, whooshes his cape up like a girl and sits down in the, ch- in the chair, and it's really funny. And it's and Inigo rushes in, he's like, oh, why is he standing? He has no strength. And Humperdinck's like, I knew you were bluffing. But uh, either way, he lost the Mega Roast battle, so he's, he's done. He, he was intimidated by Wesley standing and all that. Uh, so Wesley wins the day here against Humperdinck by just having the strength in him. And that's what Wesley has proven to be, a very enduring character, enduring the Dread Pirate Roberts, enduring torture and the Fire Swamp and the Machine and all that. And this is that final, uh, that final moment of that. He's, he's proven to be a character that will not give up easily, and uh, this is him even when he should give up Finding the strength to at least give the appearance that he's not giving up. Uh, and then we're like, yo, where's Fezik? We just defeated Humperdang, but where's Fezik? And that's when we hear some horses neighing, and we look out the window, and there's Fezik. He's got some horses. And we're like, he's like, I thought I'd get some horses so for when we find the lady, we can get away. And then there's the lady, and he says, Hello, lady. Uh, and Inigo says something that makes you realize that Fezik has kind of had a character arc in a weird way. He's like, Fezik, you finally did something right. And Fezik's like, Don't worry, I won't let it go to my head. And uh, it makes you think, yeah, Fezik is just kind of this bumbling guy that has kind of messed up a lot. He couldn't kill Wesley for Vizzini. Uh, he fails on the Brute Squad, even though, you know, he, you, you want him to fail on the Brute Squad, clearly. But, uh, you know, things like that where kind of anigo has got to hold his hand through a lot of things. And this is Fezik finally taking initiative. And you realize Fezik, yeah, he, ha- he has this good heart this whole time, but he's also proven he has this loyalty this whole time that he's trying to keep going. And he's always staying with his buddy Inigo, which is one of the great brotherhoods in cinema history, Inigo Montoya and Fezik. Uh so then they one by one jump out the window. You get a shot of Buttercup like descending like a heavenly figure on Fezzik by jumping out the window. One of the shots is awesome, which is when you get uh Buttercup and you're looking at her falling from kind of an upper behind angle and you're just seeing like all of her like robes and stuff whoosh behind her. But then you get a front angle where you're like looking up into her armpit almost and it's like, first of all that framing's not good, but then it's so query that she's not falling, that she's just like standing on a block or something that it, it looks really dumb. I don't like this one. This is one of those campy ones where it's like, oh, this, no, we need a nice little satisfying an- ending here. This is a dumb idea. <laughs> Couldn't we just have them ease out of the window or something? But it's much better when we go back up to the window. And Wes, and Inigo's like, I've been in revenge for so long. I don't even know what to do now. I just killed my boy, Count Rugen. Yeah. And uh, Wes is like, you ever considered piracy? Because you would make a great Dread Pirate Roberts. And that's one of those final full circles where you're like, oh, yes, we need a Inigo Montoya's Dread Pirate Roberts movie, except we don't, never do that. Don't touch this, please. But it's like, yes, Inigo Montoya. That is the perfect idea to end his arc of now he's moving on finally. He's still maintaining his swashbuckling nature, but he's moving on from this path he's been on for so long. He succeeded, and now he can just, that's it, move on. He, he did it. We got to see him do it. We got to see him accomplish what he wanted to accomplish. Everybody accomplishes their one main goal in this movie, fall in love, defeat the six-fingered man. It's, it's awesome. Uh, and then we get a nice shot as they ride out of the castle gates and they ride off into one of those other shots that just looks like it was probably an actual painting but it's beautiful that's it that i mean that closes the arc for ego, uh is you know him considering piracy uh Fezik's done and the villains you know one of them's dead one of them's tied up and for you know his whole kingdom to shame him we get uh the grandpa saying and, and then he shuts the book He's like there's there's kissing we're not going to read the kissing the grandkids you know I, I don't think i would mind too much now and it, it, you know it's like oh yes the kid is finally growing up and actually enjoying this time with his grandpa and getting into this story, just like we've gotten into this story, a story that, you know, starts off a little cheesy, but then you realize that's what we're going for and you buy in. Uh, and then it's clear that like Buttercup and Wesley kiss one more time in a nice little shot there where they're like, they have this glowing aura to them and they look like heavenly figures and stuff. And apparently this is one of the top five kisses of all time uh, as they, <laughs> they kiss. And this was awesome. This blew all of the other kisses in the top five away. And that ends the book part of The Princess Bride with true love finally being realized and able to continue. And we come back to present day and uh, grandpa gets up to leave and the grandkid's like, hey man, uh, we just read all day, but you know, you could maybe come back tomorrow and read it to me again. And uh, that, first of all, that's also like, yes kid, thank you, you had an arc, I love that arc. Uh, but then you get the ultimate seal the deal line that you know just is the ultimate, ah, kind of ending, like yes, kind of ending. Uh, which I know that's a horrible way to describe it, but it's what it is, and that's uh, Peter Falk just going as you wish, and it it just brings it all back around. I love things that bring it all back around, and this one's such a fulfilling one. The grandpa and the grandson have found a different version of like something to bond over. You know, while Wesley and Barkov have found true love, they've found this thing that's you know kind of their minor arc of yes, we're going to read this book, and you know they start to like each other. You know, the the contrast of. their their relationship now to their relationship with the cheek-pinching and stuff like that has clearly grown steadily in increments as we cut back to reality throughout this movie. Okay, that is The Princess Bride. Let's talk about some themes and character arcs and stuff. Let's start with the character arcs since I've been talking about those a little bit already, Uh, and themes are kind of a bigger thing to move in on their own. Honestly, I've kind of tackled most of the character arcs at this point just by gradually talking about them throughout this episode. Uh, but it's still nice to kind of recap them a little bit, look at them in kind of a holistic sense, you know, kind of an overall view now that we've gone through the whole movie. So with just Wesley and Buttercup, obviously I've talked about this already. You've got the kind of concept of true love and that it's just this one thing that they're both seeking, and it's not like a result that will fluctuate in any way. It's like as long as they're together, things will turn out all right. So their character arcs don't really come individually so much as overcoming a lot of obstacles to stay together. A lot of things that could come in the way, a lot of things that are tempting to go in the way, uh, and also just, again, a lot of like ways where it should be over. Wesley is even dead at one point. You would think this romance is pretty much out the door by that point, and you kind of see Buttercup come to that. Both characters have to reach this point where they're on the brink of death, basically, but they move past it, so they kind of both hit the extreme, uh, but they bounce back and... It's really just because of the help of a lot of other characters, which is what I like. There's kind of a big supporting cast kind of coming and pulling through by the end of this movie, kind of a core four characters coming into play. Uh, but Wesley, I kind of talked about, it, he he kind of goes and gets super skillful at everything when he's the Dread Pirate Roberts and has to pass that mantle on. And again, him passing that to ego is really fulfilling. He also is a little bit salty about the whole Humperdinck situation, but he doesn't really have an arc with that. It's just like one scene and then he moves past it. So as far as arcs go for Buttercup and Wesley, they're not too much there. You're just rooting for them to find a way to finally be together by the end of this thing. Uh, Inigo Montoya, he definitely has his path for revenge. Uh, Revenge is seen as a very good thing in this light. You know, you want to see him take down Count Rugen. Uh, And again, the the kind of drive that Mandy Patinkin puts into his character through his performance, uh, as well as just the gradual progression of his character hitting some lows when, uh, you know, after he returns to the village of thieves and stuff like that, uh, you kind of see him go through the full course of having this dream, even though there's not a lot of money in it, but studying swordplay and then you know, coming close to that dream several times and eventually pulling through. So you really like to see that one very specific highlighted goal at the beginning, and he just relentlessly pursues it throughout this movie. Fizik, you know, all the other characters, really not too much. Uh, they're just kind of there in fun supporting roles. Uh, I mentioned Fezik has a tiny arc a little bit, but I don't need to go back through that because I literally just mentioned that. Um, As far as Humperdinck goes, not too much going on there uh, so much. He's just kind of a a pretty straightforward villain who wants to incite a war and uh, just kind of puts up a phony persona throughout for those means uh, as well as proving to be pretty cowardly, which is funny because he's such a skillful hunter. It's kind of a contrast to that piece of information we've picked up throughout him tracking uh, the man in black and stuff. But you know, not too much to talk about him or Count Rugen. Uh, I already talked about the grandpa and the grandkids. So as far as character arts go, I think I've either tackled most of them or it's really just we know what the goals are and we just want to see the characters attain them. There's not so much a change in the characters so much as it's them having to keep at it to achieve the various goals that are laid out at basically the very beginning of this movie, which is kind of a separate thing. I think you can kind of divide most movies into that. Is it a character changing by the end or is it a character you know, finally overcoming all these obstacles to achieve the goal. Usually they learn something in the process, but this has this kind of fairy tale element to it where no, just the fulfillment of those goals is enough. As far as the plot itself goes, I've already talked about a little bit, lots of tones, lots of various subjects of lightheartedness, but also great seriousness treated with great lightheartedness. And uh it's it's just overall enjoyable. Sure there's some conveniences with stuff like Miracle Max, like not really conveniences so much as just like uh random things that swoop in and save the day. But, you know, I kind of talked about this at length earlier of, you know, how that fits into the style of this movie. Uh, so I don't need to tackle that too much. This is a problem with kind of this end summary. I've hit most of the points I want to talk about by the end. But that means I should move on to themes because that's the one thing I do want to talk about. Not too many like symbols or allegories or anything like that. Maybe, you know, m- you could stretch and say the miracle pill is a sign of, you know, just kind of a manifestation of... There's Always Hope or something like that. You could get real fancy with it, but I'm not going to. It's just a fun, campy kind of movie in that way that, you know, has its it has its heart for sure. Uh, but as far as that goes, it, it doesn't get too in-depth with symbols and crazy literary element kind of stuff. But uh, that means we should just tackle themes here. Obviously, there's kind of the true love idea running throughout this movie that I talked about at the very beginning. But what's interesting is that true love kind of is set against a life that is not fair, a life that has a lot of pain. There's kind of a contrast there of true love versus a life that just behaves unjustly towards individuals. You've got many examples of the latter here because Inigo, you know, he loses his father and he can't defeat uh, Count Rugen at the start. That's a big thing. Wesley is seemingly killed after finding his true love. That's not cool. It seems like Buttercup's going to be with Humperdinck for a while. Even the grandkid points that out. There's all this stuff, but with all this stuff, there is deep loyalties and deep love that pulls all the characters through. Of course, Buttercup and Wesley, but then Anigo and his loyalty to his father, Fezik and his loyalty to Inigo, uh, and it's ultimately the characters who have no loyalty to anything that suffer the most. Humperdink is being is being treasonous towards Florin and trying to incite a war and he loses. Same with Vizzini, same with Count Rugen. So the characters that have no loyalty or thing that they are that they love, of course Humperdink doesn't actually love Buttercup. They're the ones that lose in the end. So I think that's a very straightforward message of those who deal with the fact that life is not fair and keep fighting that no matter what and have some sort of loyalty or love to hold out on, which is a kind of an absolute in this movie. Love is kind of an absolute idea. You
0: are saying love is absolute. Yes!
1: Those are the people that are going to pull through. That's kind of the message you could reach in and pull out of this movie. It's not, you know, really in your face and it's not really meant to be in your face, but it's one of those things where if you really think about this movie, oh, that is something you could take away from it. It's a very, you know, kind of storybook idea. So it works very well. Other little things uh, is kind of determination. I kind of just hit on that a second ago. Uh, And that with revenge, Uh, I think unexpected alliances are kind of running thing in this movie. If people crossing paths and uh, helping one another because they're all achieving various ends, but they just happen to coincide like, oh, yeah, we can succeed. If we go get the man in black, we can get inside this castle and help him along the way. And that's just kind of an idea, not so much a theme, but something I noticed. Uh, And then also, I kind of mentioned the people that don't have loyalty or love. It's also, those are the people that have the most arrogance. Count Rugen is like, I study pain, so I'm really important, and I'll just torture people to learn about pain. Humperdinck, very arrogant about him being an amazing hunter, and he has this brilliant idea to incite a war. Vizzini calls Socrates, Plato, and Aristotle morons because he thinks he's so smart. These are the characters whose arrogance gets in their way. Vizini's arrogance about the battle of wits costs him his life. Comperning's arrogance about pretty much everything. You know, like him really thinking Wesley is bluffing and stuff like that, and all these little moments, not so much a big, like, pitfall moment, but little ones along the way. Same for Count Rugen. Mainly, Count Rugen blows it by just watching and trying to get his last monologue in uh, and letting an ego stay there. Of course, we don't want Count Rugen to do him in, but, you know, that kind of part of it you could see as his. Ego and his, you know, I need the last word, sealed the deal villain style kind of thing, uh, you know, getting in his way of his goals. And those are the kind of main themes. Nothing that's too in-depth like I would dissect in like a real drama, which I still haven't done, mostly because I'm trying to get this episode flow like 100% before I really tackle anything big uh, with a lot of complexities to it. But for now, you can see this was kind of a straightforward one. All right, favorite scene. This is an easy one for me. The Battle of Wits is fantastic. The problem is after this, it is a massive a massive amount of scenes that are right next to each other in just how well they're executed. You've got the sword fight. You've got uh, the Pit of Despair scenes. You've got Miracle Max. Enigo uh, Montoya finally getting his revenge. Really everything in this movie. is, a, is a, Each scene on its own is really well done, and so obviously you put that all together, it's great. Lee's favorite scene? Not really any. There's a couple scenes with just Humperdinck and Buttercup going back and forth and Buttercup saying, like, "Uh, you are not sending for Wesley, aren't you? That Just because they're kind of plot advancement scenes and character development scenes fall by the wayside in the midst of all the other scenes that you really love in this movie, so I could count one of those, maybe. As far as favorite shots go, I think I really do like the shot of the Cliffs of Insanity when we're pulling up to the Cliffs of Insanity. For some reason, I just find that really funny. Least favorite shot's got to be Buttercup jumping from the window at the end. It just looks so awkward and staged. Don't like that at all. And then favorite lines and uh, least favorite lines. I could not pick a favorite line in this movie. I quote so much stuff in this movie that it is quite impossible. I would have to sit down and pick a favorite line per each character, and even that would be a challenge with characters like Vizzini and Miracle-Max. So I'm not even going to touch that one. Just know I love every line in this movie. Least favorite line? None. Which means, that's it. That is The Princess Bride. If you have made it this far, I applaud you. I thank you for listening. Obviously, at this point, this episode is super long. might even be our longest one. It's going to contest La La Land for that title, probably. But uh, either way, this has been a huge episode. Hopefully, in post, I maybe cut some of the rambling, because there's always rambling. But it's really fun to just kind of get all of my thoughts out about this movie. I just tend to repeat a lot of those thoughts, which is what I need to scale back on or end every sentence with yeah and i think that was great so we'll cut back on that well i'm well, gonna we'll at least try but for now thank you for listening to cine study uh this has been episode 27 the princess bride a couple little plugs before you go you can check us out on facebook and instagram at cine study podcast you can email us at cine study gmail dot com with your reviews recommendations personal lists ideas for the show mail you just want us to read, because we will read it. Definitely follow us on Instagram. That's when you'll get new episode alerts most frequently, as well as some other polls and things like that. Check me out on Letterboxd at Film Dylan, because that's where I log every movie I'm seeing at any given time, and you can see anything I've ever seen and what I give it out of 10. And some little mini-reviews for a couple of them, just like quick kind of joke thoughts more than anything, but they're still there. I definitely encourage you to follow that. I do a lot of ranking lists on there that you can see on there before I end up doing an episode on them. And just get your own take on them and think about how you would arrange them before I ramble about them in an episode. Please be sure to review the show if you like it and, you know, t- you know, share it to the best of your ability with friends, other podcasters, you know. Uh, we just really like to keep getting the show out there because, uh, as I've mentioned many times before, at the end of the day, I really want to talk about these movies with other people, not just myself uh, in the recording studio. And uh, that's really the main idea. With that in mind, reviews and all that really do help out the show. But otherwise, that's about it. Upcoming episodes, I might be knocking out a mini review on Toy Story Four, um, and maybe some other stuff. But we'll see. Uh, for now, extended analysis is behind me, as such a relief feeling. Uh, but as I say this, uh, as I say this, you're hearing this and thinking, "Oh, the episode's almost done." Uh, as I say this, I got to edit a whole bunch of material. So let me get on that. I thank you for listening to CineStudy, Study, Episode Twenty Seven, Extended Analysis on The Princess Bride, and I'll catch you next time.
0: Thank you for listening to CineStudy.